using that one eight and a half by 11 page, one page front only to write the letter to my younger self was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life up until that point. Hmm. Because I had a hundred things that I wanted to say to my younger self and I had to go through and sift through and pick what is it that feels the most important. I learned to tell a part of my story in this project that was you know, in a lot of ways, a roadmap for the rest of my life. Hello, and welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. Um, the guest today is Brandon Brown, who participated in our art documentary project uh, almost a decade ago. Um, and I'm very excited to be able to have him in here today and to talk about his experience having recently been released in the last year and his take on what it was like to be involved in a project that was attempting to help if we could have done that better if there's things we've done we've done wrong but I think primarily Brandon has been an inspiration to me as far as someone who can take a horrible situation and insist on turning his life his experience and everything involved in that into something that's positive so let's talk to Brandon. Brandon Sabasel Brown. Yep. Uh, welcome to Architecture, Design, and Photography. This is probably a, a little bit different of a, a situation or reason for being here than you're used to speaking at. First time we met was almost a decade ago in prison. Yeah. And I am <clears throat> going to do my best not to get emotional today. I don't know why, but you've been a real inspiration in, in many ways. To a lot of people. Um, and I don't know exactly why I'm so emotionally attached to it and why you're so inspirational for me, but I hope we can figure that out. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for coming, taking the time uh, for everything that you're doing. But uh, why don't you give us a bit of a background of your whole situation up to this point so people that listen to this podcast uh, can can kind of understand why you're even here yeah i guess first thank you you know i appreciate you um appreciate the opportunity you know i'm kind of flattered to be here so and i guess i don't really know exactly where to start other than to say that you know in 2008 i was arrested for a violent crime uh, i was 21 years old at the time uh, my life had kind of spiraled out of control a few years before that just had a bad injury in high school you know had some issues with my family just kind of like lost hope and succumbed to bitterness and anger when I was like a young man and just started living my life in a way that was more reflective of that than everything that I'd known before. And, uh, you know, made an unfortunate decision that hurt somebody very badly and then ended up in, you know, looking at a 17 year prison sentence. And, uh, I guess fast forward a little bit to when I met you was a really, you know, it's, it's it's an interesting story because when I was had been in the prison for almost four years and just saw a flyer about a you know an opportunity to write a letter to your younger self and have a picture taken of you, and I was like, that sounds like a really good idea. You know, that sounds like something that I do most days in my life anyway. Try to reflect on where my life went wrong and how it's possible that I ended up where I was. And I guess the opportunity to actually say something to my younger self in a physical way. Uh, really spoke to me. I had no expectations, didn't really know what to expect. Just thought it was a cool opportunity. And, uh, you know, because of that, I was able to meet you guys and participate in that project, which ended up being like a really profound thing for me. And I guess mostly because of how 
fancy and professional and like unexpected <laughs> it was, you know, I, huh. I literally thought, okay, I'll see a caseworker with a digital camera and they'll like staple my letter to a piece of paper and, you know, it'll be like, here, here you go. Cause that's kind of the quality of things that was happening in the prison at the time. Right. But, uh, I'll never forget walking into the visit room that day and meeting you guys, you know, seeing the, like the actual professional equipment and, just having that conversation with you guys and getting to know you in that moment, like really made me realize that this is something different and bigger. And, hmm. you know, I knew right away I was, I was going to be happy that I participated in it. And, uh, I actually met a lot of really cool people cause of your project, you know, yeah. got letters from people from all over the country who just saw it online. And, you know, some of those relationships lasted and became really strong friendships. And oh, wow. that's been a pretty cool part of my journey. Um, so yeah, I think that was like 2013. Yeah. And, you know, here we are fast forward nine years later, I got out of prison six months ago, um, six or seven months ago, October 18th, I transitioned out. And, uh, in the nine years since that, you know, I've just tried to continue to better my life and make a difference as much as I can. Got really fortunate to get my education while I was in prison. That really was something I was dedicated to and, you know, always pushing for because I realized that the better educated I became, the more of a difference I could make coming out here. So was very lucky to get my bachelor's degree, my master's degree, and start the first two years of my PhD while I was in prison. Um, still on that journey right now. Trying, I'm actually in my last classes right now. This is finals week, so I got some finals I oh, got to wow. write. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> sorry, to, no, if no you worries. Need to be studying, not at all. Um, and yeah, I just took the opportunity, you know, in the nine years since you know since we met to just. I guess I took the opportunity to seize every opportunity, you know, mm -hmm. and regardless of what it was, if it was something that I thought would bring value to my life, then I, I made the time for it, became a, you know, certified yoga instructor, started training service dogs, um, got involved in, you know, trying to write legislation to make the system a little bit better than it is. And, you know, especially making the state of Maine, our reentry, you know, something that helps people instead of hurts people. And, just really believe in the idea of a more healthy criminal justice system because I can see in my life how it negatively affected me. But I think that, that can be kind of a misnomer, right? It negatively affected me because I can see how it negatively affected everybody. Mm. I made a mistake. I deserve to go to prison. I always accepted that. I have a hard time accepting what the system does to everybody else, be, you know, through what it does to me. Right. So just trying to make a difference, you know, use my education as a platform and, talking out about it anytime I can, I guess. So to, to explain to, um, anyone else who's unfamiliar with the project that we did, um, as a professional photographer, you need to involve yourself in personal projects that come from your heart, if you will. And what I do most of the time is taking highly paid, you know, photography of really expensive spaces. And it's, it's really fun. Um, and, and you make a good living off of it. But it, I, I grew up in a, in a religious spiritual family that had the idea that you wanted to work directly towards changing people's lives. And I never felt that I was doing that in the work that I was doing. I was, I was creating jobs. I was adding to the economy. But this idea of actually, what are you directly doing to, to give of your, of, of your most value? Like in, in what I can do in the world with my talents rather than my, my attitude and disposition, but like with the talents I have, how can I give back? And a friend of mine had gone away to prison. Um, not that we're not becoming friends, but yeah. 
<laughs> but a, a friend from childhood had gone away to prison for, I think, up to about 35 years. He's still in. Um, he had four kids, five kids. Uh, and it really hit me, you know, because we were very, very similar people. And uh, I was thinking about this, well, I've got to do a personal project. And like, what, what is kind of stewing around in my head that, that I don't have a lot of clarity on? How can I approach it with creativity to work towards some ends of understanding? Um, and also to give someone else a voice that doesn't currently have enough of a voice. And uh, this friend that had gone away to prison, I found out probably not hardly more than a month after my, my oldest son was born. And uh, I remember sitting out on my deck, I had my legs crossed, and he would fit just, you know, right there. And I remember sitting there with him like that, and then I got a call from a friend saying that, you know, so-and-so has gone away to prison, you know, and what had happened. It's not my story to tell, but... It, it really, you know, it was, it was very much that like there, but for the grace of God, go I mm. kind of thing. Like, and it, it was very, um, it was very discombobulating to think that someone very similar to me could end up in that situation. And it, it gave me a lot of reflection and a lot of, you know, like checking the, pumping the brakes to like, how did this happen? You know? And I wanted to, I don't know how much of this was conscious level articulation of the whole thing, um, but it, we ended up using the talents we have to give a voice yeah. to those who would not have been able to reach out of there and to give them something as a means of processing and sharing. Because the thing I've found is that failure is such an incredible teacher if you can face it. Mm -hmm. And that's probably one of the reasons I'm so um, inspired by you and your story is that, you know, facing the things that are your worst moments, uh, they clean out the deepest recesses and the hardest parts of you that you don't want to face. And when you can show that you've been able to face the worst side of yourself and build from there, it's so inspiring to other people, especially other people that could be in your similar situation. Yeah. And I just, I don't know how it came to it. We just had this brain fart of like, well, why don't we just do portraits of prison inmates? Because my friend was in prison and, and Tim and I were talking it over and, and I knew kind of like, that'd be cool, but it's not enough. Like, how could we make it something more? And we came up with the idea of writing this letter to the younger selves in their own handwriting and then putting it in around them. And the thing we didn't really plan or understand what we were doing was was we were really engaging with the the other side of the lens essentially to in their own handwriting they are talking to themselves and you get to eavesdrop on that yeah. and you have that individual expression and touch in the actual handwriting being there which it was amazing to watch you know your i, I know your dad came to the, the gallery showing he was really uh, touched by it. My parents came. And it was a very interesting reflection to look at that to now. It's like, uh, since then, you know, your dad had to face something about his son at that point, mm -hmm. and my parents were facing something about me at that point. And the weird thing that allowed me to get two or three sentences in before you get offended 
Um, the weird thing there is that, you know, your father's sitting there looking at um, his son, who in some ways he could obviously be very, very disappointed about. Yeah. But you're in that moment cleaning out the deepest recesses and laying that bare and building new. Yeah. And there's such incredible power in that. And, you know, since then, I've established an income, a business, and a family, and and I've done a lot for myself. Yeah. But, you know, you don't have all those things right now, but you have the ability to change so many lives. And that's really powerful. But that was the encapsulation of that project and and the reason that you're here. Um, and I, you know, again, I just really appreciate and I'm curious as to what, what caused this? What was able, how were you able to turn such a horrendous, I can't imagine going through your experience, but I mean, from where you were at as a kid, getting to the point of, of making the decisions that you did to end up in prison, what's that part of, of the story like? What are the emotions? Because I have two young boys who yeah. could just as easily end up in the same spot. Yeah, it's, I mean, this is the stuff that I spent, you know, almost 13 years trying to make sense of. And I think as much as a human being can, I've made pretty good sense of it, um, you know, at least for myself. And it's, you know, like even when you have a normal childhood, like every every person's journey is unique. Right. And we can all go through the same thing and take something different from it. Um, we, we just we know that's how the human mind works. Like different people respond to trauma differently. Different people respond to like every situation differently. And so for me, you know, my I guess my childhood was interesting. You know, we moved a lot and military or no, I mean, my dad was in the military. My mom was in the military before I was born. They both got out, you know, right before I was born, around the time I was born. And I think that we just moved a lot because my dad was just seeking opportunities, right, to take care of his family, to make a livable wage and, right. you know, to provide. And my parents got divorced when I was very, very young, like two years old. And so there was, you know, splitting and and we were just moving with my dad, moving with my mom. And then it just became kind of like a repetitive cycle. And then we moved to Maine from Texas when I was like Eight what or is nine. with the Texas Maine connection? My dad is from Maine. My mom is from Texas. They met but, in the military. Like, I, I run into so many people oh, with that, that are connection. like they they're back and forth, yeah. or there's just so much of a connection between the two. Yeah. I was just in Texas yesterday. Nice. I think yeah. Well, yesterday morning, and I I had in, on that job, I'd run into like two or three people from, from Maine, Maine, and yeah. I was just like, what on earth? I went to a this place where it's an inland wave park where you can surf oh, nice. have in Texas. So yeah. whenever I do a job there, I make a point of going over there because it's amazing. But um, I was actually in the surf pool with someone. And I was like, yeah, where are you from? And I, they're from Texas. And then I was like, oh, I'm from Maine. You know, they're like, oh, no way. I grew up in Brunswick. And I yeah, was like, what's with this Maine-Texas connection? But I know so. you think Maine's such a small place. that, And then it's like always surprises me when I meet people with a Maine connection from, you know, anywhere that I'm at. I run into them all yeah. the time. It's crazy. That's that's actually really funny, especially in a place like Texas. That's so huge to run into Mainers. Yeah, that would kind of like make you question the world a little bit. Right. Yeah, but yeah, I just I mean, I grew up in Texas and moved up here, and even you know, even when we when we moved to Maine, we just bopped around the state because my dad, you know, had purchased a business and was growing the business, and I think it was also just like a routine for us. You know, mm -hmm. like it was never a big deal to move once you got so used to it. And I only say that to say like. I never experienced community when I was growing up. Yeah. You know, it's uh, as a young person, just always being on the move, you know, you make friends at school and then the next year you leave them and then you got to start that whole process again. And for me, I can look back and find 
that like I was an athlete my whole life, um, come from a very athletic family, you know, up until the time that I dedicated myself to basketball, I played three or four sports every year. And so like every time we would move, it would be sports for me that gave me like a sense of belonging, a sense of community. Right. It was also my best coping mechanism, you know, being the new kid at school always, especially when we moved up here from Texas, even though I was young, you know, a very, very active child. And so like, what are you like six, 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 five, seven, yeah, six five. about six, five. And, uh, you know, I was, I was also five two my freshman year. So I had a oh, big whoa. growth spurt my junior year. So I was always tiny until like the end of high school. But, you know, like moving up to Maine as a young person, I got this thick Southern accent and wearing like winter clothes in the summer, right. you know, kids are cruel. And, right. you know, like I never felt like I belonged until we were playing sports because mm-hmm. nobody cares about what your accent's like if you're a value to the team. And right. so that's really, you know, in my youth where I found value was as an athlete. And, um, you know, in high school I hit a growth spurt. I grew almost a foot over a summer, um, decided like, okay, basketball is definitely my favorite sport. Now I have like a whole new arsenal because I'm six, five, I'm a point guard. I want to take this seriously. This is what I want to do with my life. And so I asked my dad if we could move from Dover, New Hampshire, back up to Cape Elizabeth, Maine, so I could play basketball at Cape high school because they had a great program, smaller venue, get more attention as a good player. And, uh, you know, I think my dad believed in it. So I actually got an apartment like my junior year. Uh, I lived on my own for the second half of my junior year until my dad and stepmom relocated up here. And, you know, you think like a 17 year old junior in high school own apartment be like party central, but I didn't party. You know, I didn't, I never drank. I never smoked weed. I never did anything up until that point. And it's like, I live by myself and I dribble my basketball around my apartment. You know, Were I, you on the second floor? No, nope, I was in the, I was on the <laughs> bottom floor, so not even the first floor, like the basement floor. It's freaking neighbors. Yeah, they would, I wouldn't be surprised if there were some complaints, but that's all I did. You know, like I did my homework. I never I never paid a lot of attention to school. I just did enough to get by. But you know, I played basketball every day when I was home. I would dribble my ball in my living room and you know watch TV, and that that was my life. You know, mm-hmm. it was like a really really dedicated to basketball, and. uh you know, it's like a lot of background information for a very short thing. My first practice of my senior year, I tore my ACL, Oof. tore my meniscus. And like the summer leading up to the beginning of school coming into my senior year was my first, you know, time playing basketball as a high schooler in the state of Maine. And I played in a summer league and just did really good. You know, had great numbers, you know, really like really, really shined for the first time in my life, like started to really believe in myself. And, uh, you know, just from a summer season was invited to play in the, you know, state all-star tournament that at the end of the summer. And, you know, I was playing with kids that had been playing their whole life and, you know, it took them three years of playing in Maine to get selected for this tournament. And I got selected after three months. And so I really started believing in myself probably for the first time in my life. You know what I mean? And, uh, yeah, I lost it all first practice in my senior season. And, you know, I had uprooted my life from uh, high school where I, ha- I had found community, because I had a really clear, you know, plan and path for my future moving forward and it was basketball. So I wanted to, whatever it took to like maximize the opportunity to play ball in college. That's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, there, so basically to make a long story, not so long after I tore my ACL, we didn't have insurance. So it was really hard to figure out what the next step was. Mm. Right. It's like, you know, they said to be sure you need an MRI, Obviously, we don't have insurance. We can't afford an MRI. And so it was like, we'll just wait it out, see if it heals, and then figure it out from there. And, uh, you know, just wasn't getting better. And so it was pretty obvious that, we, you know, I think it 
created some tension in my family because, you know, I'm 18 years old. I probably need a significant surgery that, you know, no like working family could afford without insurance. You know, I it's mean, just geez, today that would medical bills are outrageous. Like it's like, that, you know, hundred thousand dollars, you know, between the wow. MRI, the anesthesia, the surgery, recovery, all that. And, wow. you know, I don't pretend to know why this happened, but I'm sure like, you know, my father was going through other things. My family was going through things. Plus we had this big event, you know, kind of like looming that I was probably going to need surgery. And, you know, just one day, I think all of the shit, for lack of a better word, just kind of culminated. And, you know, my dad and I ended up getting an argument, getting a fist fight. And, uh, hmm. you know, I, I just I left home that day. And so I entered into a space at the age of 18 where everything I thought I'd worked my whole life for, the community I thought I'd built, my family, you know, within about a 30-day period, I felt like I had lost everything. And, you know, being like a young, angry, bitter, resentful man is just a dangerous combination, no matter what your circumstances are. And, you know, I let the bitterness and the anger and the resentment creep in and just like lived my life with it for like four years. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting kicked out of school because I wasn't living in Cape Elizabeth which in hindsight is just the, the dumbest thing in the world. You take somebody halfway through their senior year who literally changed schools, right? you know, halfway through their junior year, who is going through the most vulnerable point in their life. And you basically tell them that because you're an athlete and you're not living in this town, you, you know, we have to kick you out. <laughs> like, you know, basically athletics became more important than like my young life. And so I had to switch schools halfway through my senior year. Wow. I started school. And at, then you didn't have that ability to kind of, weave into a new school with absolutely yeah that's the only thing i'd ever known right? right the only way i ever knew how to fit in and you know so in, in hindsight i started at a new school you know like first day i was allowed to be off the couch after surgery i started at a new school on crutches with a big you know hmm. big leg brace carrying an ice cooler around it's obviously not a great look for incoming senior um and I think over the next like six months, I did everything to fit in that I had never done before. Right? I started drinking, started smoking weed and really just like, can I curse on this? Do anything you want. <laughs> you know, I stopped giving a fuck and that's just the best way to put it. Yeah. You know, I, I think everything that had mattered to me before that point in my life, I didn't have anymore. I didn't have my family. I didn't have my friends at the, either of the high schools that I'd come from. I didn't have a future. You know, it was like I never planned or cared about anything but basketball. Mm. And so I literally probably I think I woke up one day and was like, you know, I've never drank. I've never smoked weed. All my friends do those things. They all have fun. I've robbed myself of fun my whole life, mm. you know, for the sake of uh, for of basketball, you know, and now that's so, gone. Yeah. And also I'm my own guardian. I'm 18 years old. So who's going to tell me anything? And, you know, so like. It's not, it's, this is not a story of addiction because I never became addicted to drugs. I just lost hope and became addicted to seeking out connection and community where I had never found it before. And I did that through, you know, drinking and smoking weed. And then it was, I did that through selling weed. And then it was, I did that through, you know, escalating the sale of drugs to other drugs and increasing the amount of drugs I was selling. And, you know, like the easiest way to describe it is, 
It e- seems like whatever you're approaching, you're doing it in a very strategic manner. Yeah. Even when it's like, well, now I'll be a drug dealer. Exactly. Let's go all out and it, here. And that's what it was. It was like, well, whatever I'm going to do, I'm going to use the same discipline I used as an athlete and I'm just going to go all out, right. you know? And, and it was like, I started telling myself stories about why I was doing things to justify it. And subconsciously, a lot of it was because I was doing stuff I know my dad would be ashamed of. Hmm. You know, and like I was ashamed of him at that time with my bitterness and my anger and, you know, subconsciously without like telling people was doing everything I know that would piss him off. Hmm. And then a couple things happened where he found out some, you know, I had been arrested for like a, some petty shit and it pissed him off and we got in a big argument about it and, you know, almost got in another fight about it. And that was all I needed to know. All right. You're mad at me. Good. Now let's kick it into another gear. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I like that's how I lived my life from 18 to 21. I wanted to be, you know, the best drug dealer, the biggest badass, you know, just like hanging out with a, a group of guys that we got a reputation. And, you know, it's also ironic because I say all that, but I was also still the best friend. You know, the I was still the young person I was that people gravitated towards. I still took care of the people I loved um, outside of like the broken relationships in my family. You know, any friend knew they could call on me and I'd be there in a second. And, you know, like I retained all my good qualities, but adopted these really bad ones. And, you know, when I committed my crime, it it was nothing like, you know, the court will tell you differently, but it was nothing premeditated. It was nothing planned. It was nothing thought out. I literally just tried to show up for a friend that night in the way that I knew how, which was, you know, being Billy badass. And I think my friend's going to get jumped. So I'm going to bring a gun to this. And if anything happens, then I'm gonna scare people away. And being 21 and stupid and, you know, reckless, I never once thought that I might actually have to use this gun and got in a situation where I did. And, you know, that moment is something that I'll relive for the rest of my life. You know, at the time, I never thought I did anything wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, I went a couple of years of my life after I shot somebody thinking that that's what that person deserved. And if they hadn't put themselves in the situation, then I wouldn't be in the negative situation that I was in facing 30 years in prison. And uh, the truth of the matter is that it's the opposite. If I hadn't been a stupid ass 21 year old kid who, you know, felt like I needed to save every friend who was in a tough situation. Um, if I had actually thought about the fact that if I bring this gun downstairs, I might have to use it then that person's life would not be changed drastically for the worse. Um, And at the end of the day, I'll never understand the way that the system played out with my situation, but I know that I deserved it, whatever it was. And, you know, it's like a really tough thing to realize that I got to a place where I was capable of harming another person at such a high level because I never had community, because I never had connection, you know, because I got in a situation at 18 that made me bitter and angry and stopped caring about anybody else and, you know, or the consequences of my actions, which again is ironic because I still cared about helping people and showing up for people, but I never once considered the negative things that I was doing and the effects they were having on people because I always justify as like, well, I'm a good person. I show Mm -hmm. up for my friends, you know, I take care of the people I love and all that came crashing down the day I almost ended somebody else's life. What was it like after that exact moment when you had seen what you just did from there to getting to your cell? I mean, yeah, it's embarrassing to talk about because I mean, up until a few years after being in prison, I I didn't think I did anything wrong. Hmm. 
you know, like the details of what happened that night don't really matter. Um, there's, you know, a handful of us that know everything that happened from start to finish. And then there's the stories that were told in court. And I used to be hyper-focused on the difference between those things because it made me angry that mm. the truth didn't come out and that, you know, people told versions of the truth that were meant to achieve a goal. My versions of the truth were meant to be found not guilty and other people's versions of the truth were meant for me to be found guilty and get a maximum penalty. And that's just the, honestly, that's how our system operates. And I see that now very clearly, but at the time, right? Like everything happened that night. I felt very justified in doing what I did because I didn't start a problem and I was bailed out a few weeks after being arrested and lived the next like year and a half of my life preparing myself mm. with a criminal defense that basically deflected responsibility and justified my actions. That's the nature of the system, right? I'm supposed to do that. My lawyer is supposed yeah. to do that. So you have a year and a half of entrenching yourself into a mindset of not guilty, very yeah. innocent, no reason to hold myself accountable for 100%. anything. Huh. Even worse than that, I, I try myself into a year and a half of blaming my victim. Wow. Right? If he hadn't done A and if his friends hadn't done B, then I wouldn't have done C. Right. And in reality, it's if I hadn't done A, which has been stupid and thought it was okay to go outside with a gun when you think there's going to be a problem, then B and C and D and everything else that followed never would have happened. But I wasn't capable of seeing that because I was literally preparing myself for a trial. And part of that preparation means I have to tell this story in a way that makes him look guilty and me look innocent. And I have to tell that story in a way that makes me look justified. And so what I did was I internally justified it and I internally accepted the fact that I hadn't done anything wrong and I was innocent. And that's a really like shitty thing because then I was found guilty and then I was given 27 years, all but 17 in prison after spending almost two years of convincing myself I hadn't done anything wrong. Right. And then this cycle of bitterness and anger and resentment repeated, right? I blamed everybody else. This is bullshit. You know, my lawyer told me I'd get five years max if I was found guilty. She also told me it was impossible to be found guilty of what I was found guilty of. Those are her exact words. Hmm. And I believe that because I was, again, a stupid kid who didn't know any better. And, uh, you know, so like it is embarrassing for me to talk about what happened the moment that I pulled the trigger until the moment I got to the main state prison, because looking back, it's like how naive and stupid I was, you know, like I never even considered what this man had gone through because there was no room for me to consider that because I, mm. it felt justified. It felt, I convinced myself that whatever he went through, I didn't need to know about it. He got what he deserved. Cause that's the mentality that I had, you know, even before the whole event happened. And that's really tough to admit because it's not who I am, which is also why I do the work I do. Cause I feel like the system created that within me. And I, I see how the system also created within him and everybody else involved in my case, this like anger and resentment and s versions of storytelling that actually aren't conducive to anybody. Hmm. Right. They, seep into our being the stories we have to tell in court and they they actually live there and they have extremely negative effects hmm. and uh you know something happened when i was found guilty i felt rage because like when you're standing there and yeah in the courtroom read the thing off. i was numb and then like rage set in because i started to feel angry at you know him all over again and angry at the DA 
because the way that she argued the case was designed to reflect me in a light that is not consistent with who I am or who I've ever been and angry at my lawyer because she made so many mistakes during my trial that, you know, lack of objections, you know, there's just a whole series of failures during that time that in that moment I, I was able to identify. And so like I experienced rage immediately and then numbness. And then a weird thing happened. I went to my jail cell at the Cumberland County jail and then I experienced hope because I was like, okay, I've, I was found guilty, but I've been out here for a year and a half, living my life, started a career, reconnect with my family and my friends, have people who support me. And so like, even though I was found guilty, I'm going to get a, a fair, light prison sentence. And so I spent five months in the county waiting for sentencing, preparing myself to do maybe oh, five so years. They don't give you sentencing when they read out. No, it's, it's that's a whole different process. You get found Ooh. guilty, then you sit in a county jail and wait for you know a pre-sentence investigation so to be it's done. It's like you're sitting there with a stretched rubber band in your face. Right? Yeah, just waiting for it to snap. Ooh. And so, like you know, what I was always considering is like, oh, it's just the rubber band's there, but it's not stretched because, again, my lawyer and everybody that I'm talking to is like, you're not going to get any time at all. You know, you're going to get a couple years, you know, you're, you've never been in trouble. You got a, you know, family and community who support you. And, you know, I went to court to get sentenced fully expecting to get a max of five years. And, and then I got 27. Wow. And, uh, when the judge said, you know, I'm going to set your base sentence at 27 years. And then he, he said something to the effect of, but you know, I don't think that it's hopeless for you. I think there's a lot of mitigating factors. I think that you've got so much support that I'm going to suspend a large portion of your sentence. A sense of relief set in. And then he said the words, you're only going to have to do 17 of those 27 years. And uh, I'll never forget that moment because I, I just, I literally felt that my life was over, mm. right? I was 22 years old at the at time. 22 to think of yeah. 17, 17 years. years it's that... like, you know, I, I, you might as well read me the death penalty. And, uh, and then all is the whole cycle started over again, anger and resentment, because I could see so clearly how the, the process of the trial had told a story that was so unequivocally false. And I was a victim of that story. Again, deflecting any responsibility that I needed to take about what happened. Mm -hmm. I became a victim to a story as opposed to accepting responsibility for an event because the story wasn't accurately or adequately told during my trial. That's a interesting, that, that is a very interesting take on the, that whole process of that mm. never considers is that you have this time after the incident to kind of look back at your memories mm -hmm. and start to solidify them in a way as a defense. Yeah. To tailor, I mean, you're tailoring your memories yeah. to a defense and you're literally discarding parts of that memory that are not conducive to the defense. Right. And, and both it's emotionally and legally a hundred percent. You're and, like, you're solidifying your memory yeah. and eliminating those things that, that do say, you know, you are guilty here yeah. for this X, Y, and Z, but we're just not going to talk about that. Yeah. We're or gonna, we're going to minimize that guilt. Yeah. And, and like, we, we believe that in a court of law and in the criminal legal space, like we're minimizing that guilt through like factual interpretations of evidence and through, you know, the way that we're framing the stories. But what we don't realize is you're also minimizing that guilt in a human being mm. who to change their lives needs to accept responsibility for what they did. Right. And also 
that the especially in the instance where they've hurt somebody that the person who's hurt actually deserves for somebody to understand the harm instead of mitigate and minimize the fact that there was a harm mm-hmm. and that's a hundred percent what I did and I did it at the direction of my lawyer and right. I did it at the direction of my private investigator and I did it at the direction of the legal team anybody who assisted in my defense case the same way my victim did the opposite which is you know like blame you know blaming me spinning the evidence to say that regardless of what individual responsibility each of us had that night that you know, me pulling the trigger was all my fault. And then coming up with a story that was premeditated and talking about things that happened in the past that literally had nothing to do with what happened that night. And, and so like my defense team is convincing me that I'm innocent and his prosecution team is convincing him that I'm a monster. And we both internalize these stories. Mm -hmm. And for me, it becomes resentment and, you know, a, a sense of guiltlessness I shouldn't feel guilty for what I did because I was justified in doing it. Hmm. And for him, it becomes resentment and rage and a desire for revenge and all these other things that are like, we both through that process ignored the pieces that we could have changed as individuals. And I'm also reducing it to him and I, it's so much bigger than that. Right. There's 20 other people involved as well. Right. And so It's just like getting from the point of, you know, the moment where I shot him and the moment where I got to my prison cell, it's just this roller coaster of deflection and anger and bitterness. Mm. And, you know, for me, very fortunately, something happened when I got locked in that cell at Main State Prison for the first time. I looked out the window for like six hours straight into the pod of men where I was being housed, I was on what's called reception where you're in your cell for 23 hours a day and you can only come out for an hour when nobody else is out. Now, why, do, why is that? Because they have to classify you and, you know, go through a whole process before you can actually be released to interact with population. Are they kind of like assessing like yeah. the kind of person you are in, and where a, they put you? In a sense, they're doing that, but it's also just like a flawed process where it's like, okay, we got new people within the next 30 days. We'll meet with them, explain the rules to them, mm. classify them based on like, you know, are they going to be high maximum or medium security based on your charges, your criminal history, how many times you've been locked up before? And, uh, you know, normally I actually got a little bit lucky. Normally that happens in segregation. So you have no human interaction while you're waiting for that to happen. Uh, at the time that I arrived at Main State Prison, I think segregation was full. And so they put me in a pod where, you know, I, I was, I think me and one other guy were on reception and everybody else was just, in regular population living, you know, living their institutional lives. And I got to witness that. Hmm. And so, you know, immediately within a few hours of getting to prison, I realized like, man, this is not anything that I thought it was. It's not the rumors I've heard in the county jail. It's not the stigma that I've associated with prison on TV. You know, it's just people like, you know, this is, this is like a, for lack of a better word, like a big apartment building and just full of like regular people just doing whatever they're doing. And, you know, after my first night in that cell, I think I just, it sunk in. I just kept repeating over and over again in my head, 17 years, 17 wow. years. Like, this is the rest of my life. And I just decided very consciously my first day there, like, I have to make something of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I cannot, I like, I went through an actual process of thinking, I don't understand any of this. I don't understand how I'm here. I don't understand how I got 17 years. 
I don't understand how I was found guilty. I don't understand anything because I didn't do sh- anything wrong. You know, still that like self-justification narrative that I was telling myself. But a, another, a, a new layer of that story was it, it doesn't matter. Like I'm going to fight and appeal my sentence and do all that stuff. But like at the end of the day, I learned the very hardest way possible that I have no power over my future unless it's the power that I take. Mm. And so I just decided that first day, like, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I I have to make something of my time, whether that's 17 days or 17 years, I have to do something with it. And uh, that was step one for me on the journey to like eventually finding acceptance and taking responsibility. It didn't happen overnight. It still took a few years to get to that point, but it was step one of me saying, you know, I'm not going to let myself be a victim of this process anymore i'm gonna do something to better myself now why did why do you think you and your character gravitated towards that rather than digging deeper into like well i'm here i can learn i can learn the criminal ways and you know absorb into that more protect myself in that kind of way here and then you know you're released back into normal society as an even further hardened criminal. Like, why do you think you gravitate, gravitated one way rather than the other? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think part of it is the fact that like, you know, even though I spent a couple of years living a criminal lifestyle, this is an isolated incident. I had never been in trouble before. I'd never experienced the system before. And, you know, like I said, like, it's going to sound so stupid to say out loud, but like I was a drug dealer, but I was like a really nice drug dealer. <laughs> You know, I was like the good guy. Well, you drug know? dealer in Maine. What do you Yeah, I mean, I, was, I treated people well. I wasn't like doing it selfishly, trying to like maximize every penny I could get. I was like, honestly, like doing it because it was fun and paid my bills. And, you know, it's like, so I never adopted this really negative, like criminal lifestyle other than like the fact that I wanted to be a tough guy. And that was because I got picked on growing up my whole life and, you know, like grew up getting in fights and, you know, I might've been six foot five, but I was like 160 pounds. And Mm. it's like really easy to pick on that guy until he punches you in your mouth. And, you know, so like, even though I had like this kind of hardened side of me, if you will, like I was always a sweet kid, you know, and I was always like trying to make people laugh and, you know, trying to make people smile and trying to show up for people and, and, and improve their days. Like, that's just how I grew up. I grew up with manners. I was taught manners from a very young age in a military family. You know, I was taught how to look people in the eye when I speak to them. I was taught how to be respectful. And, you know, even going through the process of being in county jail before I got to the prison, like one thing that everybody always told me is if you don't get involved in shit in prison, if you don't do drugs, if you don't gamble, and if you do gamble, if you can pay your debts, and if you just treat people with respect, you'll never have an issue. And so- find that to be true? 100% true. Listen, you know, not to get off topic, but one thing I laugh with people about- is you got a lot of people who do, you know, like, obviously a lot of us wear prison as a badge, like a badge of honor, because we don't know what the fuck else to do. Like, if we don't wear it as a badge of honor, we wear it as a badge of shame, and nobody wants to have a badge of shame. Right. And so a lot of people wear that as a badge of honor, and then they start, they talk about where they did time at. Like, oh, I did time in New York. I did time in California. It's the hardest prisons in the world. And, you know, you you people who do time in Maine wouldn't survive out there because of this and that. And and anytime those conversations come up, I just laugh at people like openly right to their face. Like, is that so? Because last time I checked, if you're a respectful, good person, it doesn't matter where you are. People respect that. Now, I don't care if you're in the hardest prison in the United States of America. If you treat people with respect, there are some politics that come involved in it, depending on what your charges are. Right. 
But at the end of the day, if you treat people with respect and you show respect and you stay respectful, people respect that. Hmm. And it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter gang. A lot of like a lot of these times, if you're not in a gang, gang violence is not necessarily going to affect you if you're treating everybody else in gangs respectfully. You know, and and it speaks volumes. People who want to do better for themselves and treat people with respect and don't get involved in drama. I don't care where you are in the world; that goes a long way. Right. And so, was, you, is, was there much gang stuff in the main state prison? No, I mean it's it is a unique prison in the sense of like there's not gang violence. You know, there's not gangs fighting for control of the yard or you know, like trying to make moves to control the black market of drugs and contraband, you know, there, all those things exist, but it's not controlled by gangs. It's just kind of like more individuals, it's such a small prison. And we're not a state that suffers from gang violence historically anyway, but you know, obviously there's pockets and groups of people. And, you know, if you ask a lot of the people at Main State Prison, they'll tell you that there's gangs because, you know, they want to belong to something and maybe they did previously before they came to the prison and tried to recreate it at the prison, you know, like those dynamics are there, but not to the extent that you find them in other States, which is the one thing where I will always admit that, right? Like, okay, we, we suffered from exponentially less violence than most other prisons, but this whole narrative of like, no matter who you are, if you go to prison, you get pulled into violence and you have to like, you know, protect yourself and make a shank right away. It's not true. Like you only have to do those things if you're getting involved in things like gambling, like drugs, like gangs, and you're not respectful. Right. Right. There, I, I honestly believe there's not a prison in this country I couldn't go to and do good time because I respect people. Right. Even the ones I don't respect, I just keep that shit to myself. Right. And I treat people with respect, even if I don't respect them. And so, you know, when I got to the prison, that's just what I told myself. Like, I'm just going to be who I am. I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs, right, other than smoking marijuana. I'm not going to do that here, right? I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to gamble. And if I gamble, I'm going to be able to pay, you know, and I'm going to just treat people with the decency that they deserve. And I'm not going to get involved in politics. And, you know, that's that's how I knew I would do my time because it just made the most sense. And And then it was the second piece. I was like... I'm going to get out of here one day, no matter if that's 17 years from now or five years from now. And I have to show something for it. Right. I can't let this time be wasted. And, you know, I I never desired to be a criminal. Like it's not a conscious choice that I was ever making. It's just, I was again, fitting in into a community to feel a sense of belonging in a way. And so I just, I, I had no desire to like fall deeper into that cycle. You know, and and then over time it became even. I became even. I felt even more strongly about that because I saw that that cycle only brought you one place. Mm. It was back to prison. You know, my first six years in prison, I saw five hundred guys come back three times, and it, it just like I became acutely aware of the fact that not only do I not desire to do the things I was doing before that led me here, I don't ever want to come back here. You know, <laughs> and I've been back since. Yeah. But. <laughs> We, they had us go back to the prison, I think just a <laughs> few, no, last summer, we went back um, to photograph all the, the paintings that are on the murals that are on the walls. Yeah. Um, and so we, it was for something for Colby. For, oh, for the uh, Freedom and Captivity Project. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm yeah. working on that right now, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, we're creating a curriculum out of that that artwork. Yeah. 
to bring inside and then out here too. Really great people. Yeah, it was really interesting to see. Like, there were some <clears throat> really talented people Man. in there making those murals. Yeah. Like, I could never do anything close to that. It was really nice. But yeah, it's I. I've actually been back too uh, by choice. You know, I went back on Friday. Oh, really? Do you go yeah. back and talk with inmates? Or I went back on Friday for an event that they were having um, because I introduced. A, I don't know if you've ever heard of Reginald Dwayne Betts, but he's a really like widely and critically acclaimed poet and author, activist. Um, you know, gotten super famous over these last five five years or so. And uh, he did a performance at the prison and then did a poetry reading at UMA and I introduced him at UMA. And so went was able to go back into the prison for that event. So, you know, obviously saw all my brothers. And well, what on earth was that like going back, but on the side of yeah. the guards letting you in and letting yeah. you out? And it was It was surreal for a lot of reasons. I mean, I'm still in custody right now, right? Like I don't actually get released from prison technically until next September, even though I'm out here sitting with you right now. I'm still in the custody of the Department of Corrections. Mm-hmm. Um, now, what does that actually mean? Like what are the procedural things that you have to do? To- yeah, so I'm on it's called the Supervised Community Confinement Program. Okay. And so basically, you know, the very first line of that policy says that, you know, residents on this program are not probationers. They're still residents of the Department of Corrections they're completing the rest of their sentence from the community. Hmm. So I have my earliest release from the Department of Corrections is next September, which means, I mean, effectively, the best way to put it is that they can bring me back to the prison at any point for any time. Um, They're allowing me to do the rest of my sentence from the community under this legislation and policy that that we were able to pass last year. And so... You is know, it okay if I pet her when she comes Yeah, absolutely. Over? I okay. just don't want to go to the bathroom here. No. <laughs> Lay down. Um, good girl. So it was weird because there's obviously an eerie feeling hanging over me that like, even yeah. though I'm walking in here in my fancy clothes, because I dressed up. Uh, and it's kind of like they still own me. Yeah, they could, they could, if they chose to, I don't, they could not let me leave. And yeah. then I could be in these other clothes again, right? Right. So that there was that part, which I think was minimal. And then the other part was like, it's going to sound a little bit immature, was like the happiest day of my life because I forced a lot of people that hated me for a very long time, staff-wise, to look at me right in my eyes, right? right? And understand, you're no different than me. Right. When right. I was here, you used to terrorize me and persecute me and treat me like trash for no other reason other than I wore this other uniform. Right. And now I'm here in my suit coat and my tie and my fancy shoes. And I want you to look at me in my eyes. And I came here by choice. Yeah. I, I, I drove myself here. Right. And I emailed your boss to ask permission to come in here. Like I put a lot of effort into coming in and then also like PS, you know, this is what I'm doing with my life. What are you doing with yours? And that's really like, it sounds ignorant to say that. And obviously these are the implicit thoughts that I have. Nothing. Well, that I, I mean, that's an emotional relationship that I'd like to get into too, that the rumors that I would hear after our project and yeah. all the attention that you guys got for our project, but also for the dog project yeah. and all that, I kept hearing these stories that I've never been able to verify. Yeah. And hopefully you can, that you got a lot of negative interaction and pushback from some of the staff there. I was terrorized. I mean, that's the best way to put it. I mean, walk me as much as you can without jeopardizing your own current freedom. Walk me through what is that really like and tell it as real as you feel comfortably because other people need to hear about this because it influences 
how we do prison. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, this is going to sound crazy to say, I, I'm not, I don't ever worry about, they, if they can come bring me back today. They still got to let me out. Right. And if they ever come bring me back to the prison, it's going to be because I was doing the right thing, not the wrong thing. And mm. that speaks to the question you're asking. Right. I, I was fortunate in that time period where you guys did this project to be engaged in like three or four things that got some media attention, right? I had just finished my associate's degree and our graduation was covered by the media and I was the, you know, the speaker for my cohort. Um, you know, so I'd done some interviews about that. Uh, I was a hospice volunteer and our hospice program was getting some press coverage because of some things that we were doing. And so I had been in the newspapers and on the news about that. We had just started the dog program and I'd been in the news for a couple interviews with the dog I was training and then your project. And so in like a four month period, I was in the news maybe five or six times for different things. And uh, yeah, I just rubbed staff the wrong way. Right. Like who, who does this guy think he is? Oh, you think you're special? Oh, you think because you got your education, you're better than me. It's like I don't think any of those things. Those are your own internal thoughts. Like I've never done or said anything right. to indicate that I think I'm better than you because I trained a dog in prison or took a picture and I wrote a letter to myself in prison or got my associate's degree in prison or I'm taking care of my dying family while I'm in prison. Like those are all choices I made to better myself. But the staff looked at it as it's shifting the narrative that people need to justify prison. And, you know, I was also on the NAACP board and we were fighting with the administration about some of their practices and policies. And so it was just this culmination of like, you know, we were arguing with them about policies and we were getting some little victories over the staff with the upper administration at central office and then while we were doing that, all these articles were coming out that were like framing me in a positive light. And how dare you frame one of our you know, right. convicts as a human being? And it See, just it, it's that attitude that is so naturally human. Yeah. But contrary to the truth of how we better. Absolutely. Like if because the thing I came away with from this is to realize how much there's just an overwhelming amount of embodied wisdom in these criminals. Yeah. If they can face what they've done, admit it clean and build from that. Yeah. Like that's so incredibly valuable, but we, we just like, Nope, you get no voice, you get no nothing. And I, I get it. There was a couple of people in that project that I thought to myself afterwards, I hope they never get out. Yeah. I don't want my wife and kids interacting with, those people yeah. ever. And I don't think that they shouldn't be out because they're criminals. I think out be, I don't think they should have ever been out because they were deeply disturbed yeah. beyond their control. That's a all. real thing. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and like one thing, and that's a different thing. Yeah. And one thing they always hear me say, like I do criminal justice reform work. This is what I do, right? I do restorative justice work. I'm a PhD student studying narrative and criminal justice and conflict resolution because I believe in the power of redemption and, transformation but that doesn't mean that everybody's gonna change and i met a handful of people who i hope never come out because i have a family of people i care about out here mm. right and and like the problem with society is that's what we do is we categorize everybody based on those 10 names we can say that person never deserves to come home because they're actually evil and then because the way that prison works is it literally lumps us all together in the same space right. Right. And covers all of our stories in the same way and tells the same narratives of criminality and brokenness. 
that we want to believe that everybody in prison is those handfuls that we can identify here really honestly with each other about. And you, you know what's weird? In the last two weeks, I've had so again, I'm I'm a very more of a creative, open-minded disposition. I do not orient myself to the world in a way that makes me think there are true boundaries that we mm -hmm. do not cross and I must maintain and enforce those. That's not my position yeah. or how I work. I look at all the boundaries and I question them and I see how I can go beyond them, first of all, legally, but then also I, I question, I pull them up and I look at, you know, I'd, I'd make a horrible uh, police officer. Yeah. It's, it's not what I do. <laughs> and for most of my life, I've been kind of resentful towards, towards cops. And I've realized in the last few years, my own disposition and how I could not do that job, but how incredibly valuable that Absolutely. job actually is. And in the last two weeks, I've, I've had interaction with police where I've made it a point to actually tell them like, hey, just so you know, I know what you do is extremely stressful at times yeah. and I could never do it. And I'm glad that there's someone doing it like you and thank you for that. Yeah. And it was incredible to see their reaction. Like the cops giving me the ticket, it's too late, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know, by the way. And he's just like, like he, he didn't know what to say. And he was like, well, did you, uh, well, have a better day. And yeah, I was yeah. like, no, no, it's a good day. It's okay. Like it was a very, you know, small ticket and it just didn't matter, you yeah. know? And I was like, not to worry about it. It's great. I more so thank you for what you do. I know it's hard yeah. at times. And then there's when I was shooting in Houston, anytime you're with a camera outside of yeah, a building of anything that come a group comes you. to, yeah. oh yeah, he came right over and got me in. And he he wasn't rude or anything else. But afterwards, I was like, you know, he's working a cush assignment right now yeah. doing this uh, at a concert venue. But I, I made it a point to go back in and find him and just single him out and say, hey, can I, you know, just talk to you for a second? Which At which point he was probably thinking, here's another person, one, yeah. you know, and he was like texting. He's like, yeah, okay. You know, and he's still texting. I was like, kind of, you know, read him the same right act or whatever. And it was like, you know, I know what you do. And like halfway through, he was just kind of looked up from his phone yeah. like, wow. Well, I, you know, and to see the, just by expressing that thing to someone, to see their countenance change mm. and to know like after you walk away from that, he's never going to be able to meet me again in life yeah. unless I do another job at that, you know. Yeah. And he's not going to know who I am, anything else. I get no real, you know, brownie points or anything else. But you know that when he goes home that evening, it's going to sit in his mind because every like I get stuff from clients and everything else all the time saying like, wow, thank you for what you do. Thank yeah. you for what you do. But I remember hearing growing up, like teachers so rarely get that. Firefighters, police. Fire, well, yeah. firefighters, it's they're always doing good stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. But police, they have a huge, a really high suicide rate and everything yeah. else. And we we don't really consider that. And there's some really bad apples. I get it. But the general thing that police officers have to deal with is highly stressful. Yeah. And just to be able to walk away and give that gift to someone else of like, you know, in the case that he might have gotten to a point where he thought about becoming that bad apple, he might have remembered that someone appreciated that someone was doing that difficult job. And that might give him that motivation to say, have some patience with this difficult yeah. person. Don't put your knee on their neck for however long. You yeah. know? That was, that was a, it's just, it's a really amazing thing to make the decision to know 
regard to your, it didn't mean no good other than like the emotions that I have of seeing someone else's day improve. Yeah. And that was something. And it's, and it's also interesting just because the reason you started talking about that is like, you know, talking about, about the project and giving people the opportunity, even in prison to kind of like, like tell a story and feel some value. And it's like, from my perspective, especially with what I'm studying, like we want to live in this world that's a false moral binary mm. where we believe that cops are all good and robbers are all bad. Right. And then that's just the simple truth of it. But then we've gotten to this ambiguous space in our country where it's like, now we're starting to question whether cops are good or not. Right. And because of that and because of the highly televised incidents that have happened and because of like the corruption that's been rooted out and all these things, you know, police are now existing on the opposite end of this false moral binary where, you know, so many people, especially young people are looking at cops as all bad. Yeah. And the reason that was so powerful and impactful for those two officers that you're talking about is because they live under the crushing weight of that stigma Yeah, where they put on that uniform every day and know that the majority of the world's going to look at them as bad, even though they're going out, the good ones are going out and trying to do good and trying to fulfill the mission that they swore to when they first put that uniform on. I know a cop who had to go and take a small child out of an oven that had been killed yeah. in that oven intentionally. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that they run into and you yeah. never get to look away from that. And it's because of these narratives now that exist, right? Where we, we literally stigmatize and stereotype police everywhere because of what a bunch of bad ones have done. And it's like, I wish that people would pay more attention to the way that narratives work more generally yeah because the fact is that's the exact same thing that every prisoner faces right right and another fact that people might not want to you know reconcile with is that the vast majority of people in prison are good people the vast majority of people in prison want to do better the vast majority of people in prison had something happen in their life that affected them so deeply that they didn't realize they were spiraling out of control into a life of addiction or criminality or whatever the case may be. Mm. And they're just waiting for the opportunity that you provided those two officers, which is for somebody or some segment of society to say, Hey, it's okay that people say these things about you and feel this way about you. I see you. And just to bring it back, like to kind of the, you know, the, the birth of all of this, that's what you did with this project is you gave a bunch of people in prison who have never had an outlet for expression, a platform to talk about like when I was younger and who I am today and a bridge to create a bridge. And it, and, and because it, it got the traction and it got the attention that it got, it really framed for like, and I'm friends with a lot of these guys. It framed for a lot of us like, man, we can tell our story and not have everybody just shit all over it right. and question its validity and and tell us, oh, that's just the convict being manipulative to make me trust him so he can get out and rob me. Right. Because right? most of the time that's what people want to believe when you tell a story about the fact that I'm not a bad person. I, I made some bad mistakes and I want to do better. That, that story is always met with a skepticism. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, what are your intentions of saying that? Like, maybe my intention is growth. Right. Maybe my, my maybe my intention is repair. Right. Maybe, maybe my intention is, you know, like recognition and acceptance and all the positive things that you're saying that people need to become a better version of themselves. Like right. to deal with the dirt and to f- sift your way through it and kind of come up out of it reborn 
and be able to leave it where it lies, right? To be able to like, with the flower metaphor, to be able to bloom. Right. And, you know, this, this is like, this is my specialty. This is what I study. We don't have pathways and avenues for people in prison to do that. Hmm. And the problem is when you physically separate people and then you erect narrative blockades around them, they can't tell a story that's transformative, which means they can't live a story that's transformative. Hmm. And for me, like, I had opportunities to do that, even though they were met with what we started talking about, like extreme resistance and resentment from the system. You know, I got a lot of negative attention from from officers in the main department of corrections because they looked at me like this person is entitled. He doesn't know his place. We're going to teach him. Can you go into any of those specific things that were done to you by guard staff comfortably? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it mostly it's just like it started off with just the comments, you know, when I would be in a room or like even walk by, they'd be like, Oh, there's the superstar. And I'd go, I don't know what you mean by that. And they go, oh, you know what we mean? You think you're better than everybody. And that's like how they it started. Directly start conversations oh, like that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, 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 you know, then we would be in our meetings where I was the president of the NAACP branch at our prison. And, you know, if we had a conversation and if like the administration favored our point of view, then we would kind of get like, I would get comments about that. Like, oh, you know, here, here comes the superstar. He thinks he's entitled, you know, oh, you're entitled. You think you deserve things. And and my response would always be very basic. Like, yes, I am entitled to like basic respect. Right. And for you to recognize my dignity as a human being, that's all that I want. That's all that any of us are asking for is for you to hold us for you to hold yourself to the same standards that you hold us to. So if I get punished for lying, I want you to understand that you can't lie, right? If I get punished for manipulating, I want you to understand that as an officer, I don't care about the power you have. You can't do that either. Right. So hold yourself to the same standards that you hold us to. That's my entitlement. Now I explain these to staff. And then obviously because I was like, you actually explain this hundred percent. Yeah. And then like the system always bucks somebody with a voice. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I also going to pay for it. Yeah. And I don't know how not to use my voice. Right. This is the ir- irony about getting an education in prison. The education is designed to show you your voice and the prison is designed to suppress your voice. Hmm. I was never one that cared about that. Like if I see something wrong, I'm going to speak out about it. If I see a better way to do it, I'm going to speak out about it. And if I see something that, you know, I, I think needs to change, I'm going to tell somebody it needs to change. And I don't care that I'm a prisoner. I don't care that I made the mistake that I made. This is my life. This is where I live. This is my community. And I want it to be better. Right. And, and just slowly over a probably two year period, um, you know, a couple more articles came out. I took more classes, you know, like became more educated and kept involving myself in all the programs that I was in. And then it got to the point where, you know, the conversations become, okay, they've let their opinion be known about me. I've resisted it verbally. Like, how do they form an opinion and put it out there within the staff? Like, here's an inmate behaving well. How How is that a bad thing? You it, know? It's a bad thing because, like, you know, how, how many officers are in the news for something good? Yeah. You know, and these are people that feel like they perform a civil service and they're deserving of you know, recognition and admiration and all these things. And so there's definitely a group, a group of people who work in prisons that just feel personally attacked when a prisoner who's done harm, when they're, when they're recognized, when their humanity is acknowledged and some goodness in them is put on display. 
Right. You know, that's definitely internalized in some people that work in prison because they're looking at it every day. Like everybody who lives here is a piece of shit. That's why my job exists. And I'm going to remind them of that. Right. Mm -hmm. Whether it's explicitly or just through my enforcement of the rules, I'm going to carry a, you know, a big stick and everybody's going to know to fall in line. And so naturally, even though it's, I didn't do anything wrong, you know, every time that there was some publicity with my name in it, it was me falling out of line. Right. And it did start very um, passively, but personal. Like a, a bunch of them would make comments to me about who do you think you are? Or, oh, this is, you know, this is the special inmate. This is the famous inmate or, you know, this is the entitled one. And it's funny because just like, like, like cops, not all officers are bad i think the majority of officers are not bad but and by I, that you mean guards yeah and, and uh, yeah yeah you know uh correctional officers okay and i did have good relationships with some of them because they respected the fact that i was definitely committed to transforming my life i mean i'm not gonna say we're friends because obviously you're not allowed to be friends in that environment my wife actually has a friend who her husband has made a choice to be a prison guard as a ministry yeah like he had a good job i think as a UPS or FedEx driver and his hours are way worse, yeah. less pay and everything. But he feels in, in his it, yeah. calling, he feels like, no, God wants me to be that yeah. in that place. And I, it's in one of the prisons in Maine here, South of us or inland. I'm not yeah. exactly sure where, but yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure he's, a, he's, he is a genuinely yeah. good guy trying to do yeah. the right thing. I'd love to have a conversation with him just about how, how he gets treated as somebody who does try to do the right thing because he, he yeah, they get treated th it. the same as we do. Yeah. You're not supposed yeah. to show these people compassion. You're not supposed to show them respect inherently, right? You're supposed to make them earn it. It's like, what? I don't even know what that means, but right. you know, that's definitely the, the mentality. And, you know, I just went through like, it got to a point where like the staff who I got along with were like, whatever you're doing, you have to stop. Because it's only a matter of time before it escalates from comments to discipline and from discipline to, you know, segregation and all these things. And I, and I would always say, I don't understand what you're saying because I'm doing everything right. And they're like, but you need to do it more quietly. And I go, I don't understand what that means either because I'm doing everything right. I'm making a positive difference in my community. I'm leading by example. I'm educating myself. I'm giving back. And because people from the outside, you want me to say no when somebody says, hey, can we interview you about your hospice program? Never going to do that. Right. Like this is these are stories that the world deserves to hear that I'm not a scumbag and that people like me are not scumbags, that we want to do better. We just need an opportunity. And then it just like also, you know, I was also my worst enemy because I don't know when to shut up sometimes. Right. <laughs> just be straight up with you. So my but life. There, that quality is what gives you the backbone 100%. to say, I know I'm doing the right thing and here's someone threatening me and scaring me. I'm just going to be smart enough to do it and stupid mm. enough to do it. Yeah. And on top <laughs> of that, every time that you try to devalue my transformation, I'm going to want to transform more. Hmm. And every time that you try to tell me that I'm entitled and that I need to learn my place, I'm going to learn my place. It's just not the one that you think that I deserve to be in. And so it was fuel for me, hmm. right? And it 100% it fueled my desire to keep going because I looked at it like I just very inherently understood that it's because I'm doing good that you're mad. right? And so 
I used to relish in their attitude. I used to embrace their anger. And every time that somebody would make a comment or a write-up would get slid under my door for something I didn't do, or even when it got to the point where it escalated, where a staff member told me straight up, if you keep beating these write-ups, they're going to slide something under your door and bury you in seg. And it's not going to stick long-term. You're not going to catch a charge. You're going to get found not guilty of the write-up. It won't stick, but you'll be in seg for a year, two years. Oh, you now know, what's that mean? Just segregation, right? Like 23 hours in your cell a day. Oh, jeez. You know, two showers a week, one phone call a week. And, it, you know, I, I knew that they were right, that that was probably inevitably what would happen. And I knew that they were right because I had seen it happen before, right? And so it got to a point where I can't remember exactly like what the incident was, but I had beaten a couple write-ups because they were false. (laughs) And then I could see the attitude shifting to be a little bit more extreme and how some staff dealt with me. And then I had basically told my dad, like, I'm going to write a letter to the commissioner of the Department of Corrections, who I knew because we had met with them as part of our NAACP board. And I said, I'm going to write a letter in crayon at visits and I want you to mail it to him. Because You're going to write a letter at what? At visits in a crayon, oh. right? Because if I send the letter out, they're going to read it. They're going to throw it away. It's never going to get to them. So yeah, during a visit, you can write a letter with a crayon? Well, you can like you can play cards and keep score so they have paper and crayons, right? Oh, at every visit. Okay. So I just told my dad, like, I'm going to write you this. I'm going to write this letter when you come to visit. I want you to mail it to the commissioner. And I just told the commissioner, like, here's what's up, right? In the last two weeks, I've gotten five write-ups. None of them are legit. If you come talk to me, I can prove to you that these incidents that they're writing me up for never happened. I can show you actual concrete evidence of the fact that they're literally trying to, you know, essentially set me up and take away my privileges to put me in my place. And so I wrote that letter and then, uh, you know, like a week later, the commissioner came to see me. We had a conversation and I basically just laid it out very plain and simple for him. The commissioner of Maine State Prisons. Of the Department of Corrections, yeah. Was able to get your crayon letter yeah. that you had to write. Wow. Yeah. Because my, my dad sent it directly to him, you right. know, and he might have even like scanned it and emailed it. I'd have to ask my dad for a better recollection. But um you know, I just kind of like laid it out for him. This is what's been going on. And he, it, this is not something that was mysterious to him. Like he was present in the meetings when we kind of made some staff look bad because we proved that they were lying right in front of their boss. And obviously he wasn't happy about that. And, you know, that's kind of what preceded this point in my life where I was getting, you know, getting these write-ups for things that I hadn't done. And uh, for me, I didn't care like until somebody told me, you know, and it was from a staff member I trusted and it's from somebody who had been around a very long time. And he was like, they're talking about it. Like the, the administration. No, he, the- he said that like staff are talking about how they're going to set you up. You know what I mean? And wow. I, he was all, I was working for him at the time. And so he was like, from his perspective, it was like, I don't want you to, you know, like you're a good worker. So we shut up. Like, so I can keep you at work. You know what I mean? Right. And, uh, see, that's so funny. Like even in, even in that someone, you have a good relationship and established trust. It's like, it's, it's like one person is bending over protecting their self-interest saying, can you please get down? And so we can just, and, and it takes people like you that are, you know, is it, it's not stupid enough, but some people would say someone's stupid enough or brave enough or courageous enough to say, 
look, if no one stands up, this isn't going to change. Yeah, 100%. And it's a combination of all those things. I recognize the stupidity of what I was doing at the time. because but it's not stupid. No, it's I mean, courage. But I recognize the piece of it that's stupid right. because it lacks self-preservation. But that's not stupid. In the short term, right? And is. that's how I always looked at it. And even like later on at the end of my prison sentence, like now we're talking 2019-ish before I went to a minimum facility, I started kind of going through some similar stuff, right? Where at this point I'm involved, I'm like enrolled in my master's degree program. And obviously there's a lot of staff that are like, what the fuck do you mean you're getting a master's degree in prison? I don't even have an associate's degree. And how are you paying for that? This is bullshit. You know, I was like, I never took the time to explain to them. I'm not paying for it because I got scholarships. And if you're so mad about me getting scholarships, why don't you have your kids write to the places that gave me scholarships like I did, you know? They just, they don't want to hear those stories. They're Mm. just pissed that I'm getting educated, especially the fact that I'm getting more educated than 99% of people who work in the prison. And so I started going through similar stuff there towards the end. But at this point, now it mattered because a write-up could take away my ability to transition to a minimum facility. A write-up could take away my ability to be out here in front of you right now on the supervised community confinement program. And so I went through a couple things where I would explain to officers, like, you can write me up. I'm going to beat it in court and then you're going to become the focal point of all of my time. I'm going to watch every move that you make. I already, <laughs> I threatening. Yeah. Person. I know your rules because I don't just read my rules. I read yours and you can hold me to the strictest standards of the inmate rules. Wow. Just understand I'll do the same. Right. And, and I have friends and you can move me out of the pod. You can't move everybody, you know? And I literally had to have, have these conversations with staff where I, where like I would tell them, how would they take that? Well, they would with fear. I mean, it's like not every day that a resident will tell you that. And also I would like name five things that this is what you did today. Like I see your computer screen from my cell and I know that you're not supposed to be reading graphic novels instead of doing your rounds. And then I'll just ask them, do you like reading graphic novels? And of course they'd be like, yeah, it passes my time. I'd be like, okay, well, you're not allowed to. And you know what's interesting? I like sharing coffee with my friends. And when you tell me you're going to write me up for doing that, it's this like, this is what we're talking about. Like, the standards you keep for me, like I used to tell them, you know, 10 years prior, keep for yourself. So to, to, you might be a little uncomfortable going through this, but how do we make it better for the guards mm-hmm. to then make a better situation all the way across for guards? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is consider how we train people. Yeah. Right. But a lot of people think I'm just talking about like the criminal justice and public safety Academy. I'm talking about how we train people. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the work I believe in. We can't just tell one dimensional stories about people in prison. Right. Because before somebody ever decides to even work in that prison, they already subscribe to the less than human qualities that everybody in prison must embody. Right. And then they go through a training that solidifies that for them. Be afraid of everybody. Don't trust anybody. Always watch your back. They will manipulate you. These are, this is literally the training that we give people in corrections. This is how you physically defend yourself. This is how you defend yourself from lies and manipulation. You know, like, but I mean, you can't, isn't that stuff present though? No, I mean, not to the extent where we need to do 250 hours of training on it. Like, and, and also how you frame things matters. Like you don't frame things with like, you never do this. You never do that because everybody here will take advantage of you because the reality is like 5% of people here will take advantage of you if you treat them with respect. The irony is that 95% will take advantage of you if you treat them like shit. Right. And this is what people fail to understand mm-hmm. is when you treat somebody like shit for long enough, they will they res- will start to become shit. Yeah. 
And not just that, just like at a basic human level, if you talk to somebody disrespectfully, I don't care who you are or where you are, at some point, it's going to be returned in force. Right. And that doesn't, that's not unique to prisons. If you just walk up to your neighbor today and say, you know, what's up, you asshole? <laughs> and your neighbor kind of scratches his head and like, Jesus, I don't know why Trent's calling me an asshole. He's normally a good guy. Like, I'll just, he must be having a bad day. And then you walk up the next morning and go, what's up, you shit bag? He might be like, man, Trent's having a bad week. <laughs> well, guess what? If you do that for 30 days straight, eventually he's going to tell you to go fuck yourself. Right. And you did that, right? He fought the urge to like return your disrespect with re- disrespect. Right. Right. That's literally the plight of the prisoner. Right. So you train people who come in here not to trust us, to think we're all basically to categorize us based on the crimes we committed, which means you limit the opportunities we have to actually transform mm. and redeem ourselves. Because even when we're actively trying, you're keeping us stuck in the narrative, even like myself, of like, oh, like now everything I'm doing is weaponized against me. Like, oh, hospice volunteer. You think you're oh, you think you're so special. Oh, college student, you think you're so smart. It's like eventually I'm gonna be like, no, I must be stupid. And I must not be special because you're treating me like a complete asshole. So then I start to, I stop valuing those things. You you start to believe the lie about yourself, embody it, and respond in kind. Yeah, and at the at a deeper level, I already have internalized the fact that society feels that way about me anyway. One of the interesting things when we had when we had the gallery showing of these, I'll walk you through those later if you want. Um, when we had the uh, photos up. It's funny, we put one here just a second ago and it's actual life size. Yeah, crazy. yeah. Um, but we put the the inmates on the wall. And then you and had the guards in the middle, Yeah, right? the guards were yeah. in the middle looking back out. And then on a back wall, we had a thing of chain link fence and people could write uh, a note to their younger self and attach it to the fence, yeah. right? And then uh, there's a guy that does counseling here for ex, ex-inmates and... Um, he went there to the gallery showing with that group and they, they all appreciated it and everything, but the chain link fence with the barbed wire was very, very unsettling for them, which we, we designed the whole thing for, you know, soccer moms and people with nine to five jobs. Right. And the thing we didn't really know we were doing is that that fence and everything for the ex inmates was really like, it brought it back this realization that, if you cross that fence, they are licensed to end your life. Yeah. And there's that that feeling of like, I've I've never experienced that. And I can't imagine what it's like. But just being close to that fence in that situation to them was very, very unsettling, which it is really amazing to to start to feel another person's experience, yeah. you know, in that way. And that was really hard for them. But on the other side of it, the, the part that I hope is the drop in the bucket that helps lean it towards prison reform in, in the larger narrative was the to watch people that, you know, would be going to Hannaford in the in the grocery getter. You Spin know? off and come in. Well, to watch people in there, um, you know, they take in the, the portrait and they're kind of like, yeah, all right, prison inmate. And then they they notice like the handwriting's different on each one. So the, yeah. this is highly individual to that person. Oh, okay. And they start reading. And I actually avoided reading everyone's letter until everything was up in the gallery. Yeah. So I could experience the same thing. Tim knew them all because he yeah, had to adjust it. Yeah. But the weird thing was that you'd read through it and halfway you're, 
you have this experience that's very weird in that you're eavesdropping and it's their voice in your head. Yeah. You know, you've never heard them, but you're trying but to, through yeah. their handwriting, the, in, in listening, you realize, oh, I'm eavesdropping on their conversation and you back out of it for a second and you see them larger than life. They're staring at you and it's, but you've kind of embodied yourself as them listening to this advice. Cause it's not advice that's coming at you. You're catching it as it goes yeah. by. So you don't have to be defensive. So you naturally kind of let yourself sink into it more. Yeah. And it was a really weird thing. Like you were watching people just stand in front of a piece for like 20 minutes and start to cry. And it yeah. was, it was really amazing to see the accidental effect of what we, what, what we made. And the, the thing, because of your guys' contribution, it stayed up. It was supposed to be up for like a week or something. I don't know. And it stayed up for like three months because wow. people kept coming. Yeah. And then afterwards, we kept getting requests from people out of state that wanted to come and see it. Yeah. And so we moved it from the gallery to one of the mills over here. And uh, it stayed up there for like a year. But eventually, the workers in the mill took it upon themselves to take it down yeah. because it was too much yeah. to go by every single every day. day. Yeah. And like... Is the worst decision I ever made for making money. It didn't make anything on it, but it, it's the most enriching thing I've ever yeah. done. You know, because of understanding and 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 kind of lifting out of the mud like diamonds out of the mud. Yeah. You know, it's like, look, I know this is a horrible situation all the way around, but there's such incredible wealth in it. And and I, the thing I've realized is that art is this opportunity to take what is in chaos and misunderstanding and everything else and plant the seed of change and eventual law, which is a weird combination between artists and cops. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's this idea that we don't quite have this right yet. We have to go past that boundary and figure this out and, and make something better of it, you know? And, and that's the hard work that you're doing right now. Yeah. And my part as being a creative was to to plant some kind of seed to do that. And and the interesting thing was is after we were able to do that, we just kind of like I approached what was her name the the social worker there at the time? Uh, uh, Martha. Martha. Yeah. Like I totally lucked out. I yeah. just kind of like she was she was the only, she was the only one that would have supported that. Dude, I <laughs> I like found her name accidentally yeah. or something, and she's like, "Oh, that sounds great." And I was like, "All right." Yeah. And it just happened like yeah. under the radar of everything. And then like right after that, it was like nothing more. No one's yeah. getting in, no one's doing anything. But that ability to be open to that exploration, to take something that we think we're clear on and to put it in a light that tells you we're not clear on yeah. this. That's the, like the seeds of, the seeds of society are, are planted in art and they yeah. turn into law. If you look at like Uncle Tom's Cabin, it took it took a piece of work like that to get the population to embody the experience of slaves and everything yeah. else to to have some empathy. Yeah, which you know it it in some way it it helps um, give validity to my lack of ability to really do anything else than than the way that I interact with the world, how I do and, and to see that it's of value mm -hmm. and to see where you can help others in that way yeah. it was really 
uh, an eye opener for me. Mm. And, and that's why I'm so, uh, I'm so happy and proud of like, I can show my kids that, you know, I, I helped in some way, you know, and that to, to give them that inspiration to like, look to the places where you can actually make change, actually contribute, actually help beyond like your own value and your yeah. own experience is just, that's how we get out of all this mud and pull yeah. these diamonds out, you know? Yeah. I think, I mean, like, it's like, this is, I'm a, I'm a nerd, right? It's like, just factual. We all are in some way. <laughs> just factual information. I'm a nerd. Uh, and I've embraced it. And like, I'm a nerd for narrative because that's what I study. And that's what I, that's really the direction I've chosen to take my, my academic life because I recognize everything that you're just saying is like really true. And that change in life only comes through story. Mm-hmm. And what you can give someone fact, then yeah. it won't change them that much. Yeah. And you can give them story and it'll change them. But the combination of the two is far more powerful. Yeah. And so what you're talking about with art is like a new way of telling a story that captivates a different part of people that they've never been touched through yet. Right. And like, you know, one thing that I'm we're always talking about in a lot of the groups that I'm in that are really focusing on like this art form, right? Like when we're talking about freedom and captivity, this this project through Colby College and talking about music as a medium. Like the reason those things matter is because they can capture a big story in a moment. Mm-hmm. A song can tell a story of a generation in three minutes. A painting can tell a story of the world in eight and a half by 11. Right. And it's all forms of stories. And what you know, what you did with this project was you allowed, and I'm going to tell you from personal experience, using that one eight and a half by 11 page, one page front only to write the letter to my younger self was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life up until that point. Hmm. Because I had a hundred things that I wanted to say to my younger self. And I had to go through and sift through and pick what is it that feels the most important? And as a personal, this is literally a transformative journey that I took in writing that letter because there was versions where I left something out and I was like, I can't leave that out. Mm. Like, I know that this is important because this is what I've thought about every day of my incarceration. And there was things that I wanted to keep that I settled on saying, like, that's not important. Like, that's not life-changing. That's not, you know, that's something that doesn't need to be heard. It should just be known. And, you know, like I learned to tell a part of my story in this project that was, you know, in a lot of ways, a roadmap for the rest of my life Hmm. because it was a reminder. It took me so long. And it's also because of how big that it was after you guys finished it that it, it, you know, people connected to me about it. And it's literally been something that's been like burned in my mind, Hmm. you know, that why did I write those things? Why were they important? What do they mean? And how did I get to that point where I was able to like select those things? And, you know, I started off by saying I'm a nerd because I just obsess over stories and narratives. And I can tell you from like a very theoretical, philosophically sound place because of the amount of studies that I've done and the amount of research I've done. I mean, I'm a a third year PhD student right now. So like my whole life has been academics since 2010. It's all that I know. Right. And I can tell you from like a really theoretically sound place why 
the stories about people in prison have permeated society. I can tell you the history of it. I can tell you the evolution of media and crime coverage. I can go through all of these things and cite in a really academic and nerdy way for you why this stuff matters. But I don't care about any of that because I just, at the end of the day, got into that to recognize the inherent value of the stories we tell mm. and why and how stories interact with us as human beings and how stories interact with us as communities and societies. And like what you were just talking about is the same that you were talking about earlier with the, with the police officers is like the power of a story mm. and the power of giving somebody access to a new story or giving somebody an outlet for a new story to be heard. And that's what I care about, right? Like even, even now today, I mean, in a couple of weeks, the Downey's magazine is going to release a really big thing about parole and it, a lot of it focuses on me. And I asked that reporter over and over again, the same thing that I always ask reporters do not exceptionalize my story because it's not just my story. Like, Everything that I did means that everybody else there can do it. There's nothing special about me that said I can overcome these circumstances and other people cannot, right? I just had access to a story that most people are cut off from because of the people who care about me. You know, anytime I doubted myself, my family and my friends said no, right? You can do that and you should do that. And anytime that I started to feel the weight of social of, of, of the social story being told about me as a convicted attempted murderer, my family would say, that's not who you are. And my mm -hmm. friends would say, that's not who you are. And my community would say, Brandon, we've gotten to know you. These are the guys I was in prison with. And that's not who you are. Right. And I started to believe that. And there's a power about believing a story, even if others don't believe it. And then I used everything I went through with the staff as the fuel, right? Okay, I'm starting to tell this new story and it's gaining traction and they're threatened by it. Hmm. I have to keep telling it. And, you know, I just like rambled on about me being a nerd to say that like, it doesn't matter that you can do things from a philosophical and theoretical place. If you can't do it from an artful place, right? then it doesn't matter. And that's why I believe in the power of story and the power, and the power of complex narratives, because right. we live in a society that reduces everything, right? We reduce people's complexity about every aspect of their life so that we can understand it for ourselves. Mm. We, we justify systems because of these overly simplified narratives about how systems work and who they contain. And when it comes to prison, you're not gonna find a more simplified story in any segment of society than you are about people who go to prison. Well, it's the it's the quickest part of our population to be disregarded. Yeah. Because we we can easily just write that off. Yeah. But we we do it at such a demise to our society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, not to mention the individuals who are being dismissed. I mean, yeah. they've done things to deserve to be there if they're rightfully convicted. Yeah. I get it. Uh, but that process of redemption and forgiveness is so incredibly powerful and we we don't want to allow it yeah it, it, to just, our own detriment oh yeah right Huge. because when, when when nationally we boast a 76 percent recidivism rate it's not working yeah. and it's only a matter of time before you you know regular joe are now a victim of the 76 percent and so it's like creating awareness in people which i really believe is what your project did at like a really high level for maybe like honestly in Maine for the first time probably mm. 
is it made people confront the fact that like, man, these are regular men with regular thoughts. Yeah. They're thinking about the same thing. And they're also thinking about their mistakes and experiencing remorse and regret and all these things that we say we want people to experience, but we don't ever have the opportunity to hear them experiencing. Right. And it's just like society's pushing prisons and prisoners to the outskirts and not caring about what happens inside of them is literally a, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy of recidivism right? and cycles of violence and crime. And it's like, if you don't give people in prison the opportunity to believe that a new story is possible and then an avenue to express that new story, then you don't allow for pathways to transformation. So how do we, first of all, if, if we have a friend or a loved one who's incarcerated, as you know, friends and loved ones on the outside, how, what's the best way to relate to that and to encourage them and to help them? Well, I wish my dad was here to answer that question because <laughs> you know he did it for almost 13 years and I can only tell you about my experience. Um, you know, anytime that I doubted myself or anytime that I was struggling with whatever aspect of prison I was struggling with, you know, whether it was like dealing with other prisoners or dealing with staff or just like seeing the brokenness of all of it and seeing the lack of treatment or the ineffectiveness of treatment um, that was available to prisoners. Like my family gave me the time to just talk about it. And they also gave me the ability to say, like they gave themselves the grace to say, I don't know, but I can tell you that that's messed up. Like I can hear you and and like, you know, it's just, at the end of the day, I think it's just about showing up, right? Mm -hmm. Like answer the phone, even if it's hard. And when somebody has something and they just need to process it, like just listen to them and remind them every chance that you can, like, this is not who you are and you get to choose, you know, because one thing that I noticed with a lot of people in prison is like, they can tell me as a person in prison with them that this is not who I am. But then they can also tell me, but this is who I am because nobody else is ever going to give me another opportunity. Right. And there's a discomfort for most people in prison about adopting the prisoner narrative and about adopting the convict conclusion that society has about you. Right. And I never met, I never met one person in prison who was like, man, fuck this. I'm going to get out. I'm just going to rob and steal. I'm probably going to kill somebody. Like, this is what I want to do. But I met a lot of freaking people in prison who were like, I'm going to try. Yeah. I'm going to try to work. I'm going to try to provide for my family. But nobody's ever going to give me a chance. So it's only right. a matter of time before you see me again. So how do we... on Now, the other thing is like, they're, for friends and family on the outside, as a friend who who has a... He wasn't like my a close friend growing yeah. up. He was the older brother of a really good friend of yeah. mine who I was very common with. Like if he was driving through town, he'd stop and say yeah, yeah. hi, you know. And in the 10 years he's been in, I've maybe written him like four times. Mm-hmm. He's down in Maryland area. And there there's this odd hesitancy. It, it's it's almost like survivor guilt. Like I've survived not going to prison. Yeah. And I I feel weird about like here's how great my life is on the outside. I get to go surfing and play with my kids and you don't. And like, it's almost like you don't want to share those things or tell them like, what's that dynamic? Like what, 
at, from from my side? Yeah. What can I do for that friend? It, it's different for everybody. You know what I mean? Like for me, those are the stories that gave me hope really? about coming home. And, you know, there are also the stories that forced me to confront a lot of difficult feelings. Like all my friends have kids. Yeah. Most of my friends are married. And it was tough sometimes to hear about, oh, I'm you know, about to have my first child because it was like, I would internalize it and be like, man, I'm in here. Like I, sh I want to be a father. Yeah. But at the same time, when I got to hear the stories and see the pictures of how their family grew, it also made me realize like it put me in that space where I'm like, well, I'm going to be a father and who do I want to be as a father? Right. Whereas if, if all my friends had just kept that from me and just told me surface level shit, like, Oh, tell us how you're doing. And every letter was just like, Oh, I'm sorry to hear that the prison sucks so bad. Like everybody knows it sucks. It's not, it's like, don't, you don't have to tell me that you're sorry that it sucks. Right. Like, tell me about the good things. Or, or also, I always respect my family and friends who told me about the hard things. I'm mm. struggling with this. I'm struggling with that. Because then it put me in a place where I felt like I had value. Mm. Like, okay, I'm going to sit in my cell in the next seven days for like a hundred and something hours by myself. And I'm going to think about what my friend's going through. And I might not be able to offer advice, but I'm going to give them some light. You know, have you ever thought about it this way? Or have you, you know, have you considered maybe you're fighting with your girl? Have you considered her perspective? Because those right. are things that you think about as a prisoner. Like the best advice I can give to anybody who's writing a letter or having a phone call or a visit with somebody in prison is like, just be real, be yourself. Right. Like whatever it is that is your success that like whatever success is your experience, tell them about them and whatever struggles that you're experiencing, tell them about them. Right. Because it's a reminder for somebody in prison that like, life is beautiful and life is shitty all at the same time every single day. And that's not just for me in my prison cell. That's for everybody out here too. And like your experiences also give somebody something to dream about. You know, like I have friends who, who literally traveled the world and they would send me pictures from Thailand and Australia and Italy. And I would put those pictures, you know, like up on my wall and I would just think to myself, like, I might get there one day. And that's a beautiful thing because all I've looked at for all these years is this barbed wire. And I forgot that the world was beautiful until I got one of those pictures. And I'll tell you like a quick story real quick, just to highlight that fact. Like a lot of people wonder what it's going to be like when you come home from prison. And like, I watched so much TV that I just assumed I know what it's going to be like because I've seen it on TV, right? Like people get out, I'm just going to cry right away. And, I'm going to feel so free and I'm going to want to eat a bunch of food. And like, it was not my experience. First of all, I got out to a reporter in the parking lot and, oh, wow. you know, like <laughs> I got out with a dog and I was immediately stressed out about the dog. And I got in a van with my dad and my sister, who are my two best friends, the two most important people in my life. And I didn't cry. And we drove away and I felt, I felt shame that I wasn't crying. Like this should feel more impactful. Hmm. You know, I should feel more moved by my freedom and I should be more, I should feel more gratitude. I should be more thankful. Like I was really struggling my first few hours out. Cause I was like, why am I not being hit with right. this emotional Louisville slugger that I just always assumed that I would be hit with? Like I didn't drop to the ground and kiss the pavement. I thought that's what I was supposed to do. And it was like a few days later that I was outside living in the middle of the woods in Gilead, Maine. I was outside with this dog, you know, taking her out before I went to bed and I just like heard something and I looked up to see like it was a bat or a bird or whatever. And the stars just smacked me right in my face. So was the stars for some reason. You know what I mean? It was like I, the stars were so brilliant and clear 
And I'm not, I'm not even bullshitting you. Before I could put my head down, I was weeping. And I don't mm. even know what happened other than I realized that I was in prison for almost 13 years. I never looked at the stars. Hmm. And I had to think about that in that moment. It's like, why would I? The stars, they don't, they, all the stars do while I'm in prison is limit my possibility and my human potential because they're unreachable, right? All they are is a reminder of everything that's outside of this fence that I don't have access to. And I looked at the concrete and the steel every single day to remind myself, this is what you have to live through. If you don't get through this concrete and the steel, then you don't get to anything else. I never looked at the stars. And that night, it was like two o'clock in the morning. I just, it was like 22 degrees outside. I'm in, you know, like 17 layers to take this dog out. And I just laid on the dirt driveway with her cuddled up to me. And until I couldn't bear the cold anymore, I just looked at the stars and cried. Like, you know, uncontrollably heaving and snotting on myself and just like shaking. But with like gratitude that even though I can recognize how dark prison was that I never looked up at the stars and even dreamt about like what life out here would be like. I also realized kind of what you just asked a minute ago that my friends kept me from that becoming my whole reality by telling me about their lives, by sending mm -hmm. me their pictures because my, and when it was just me, I couldn't look up at the stars and every once in a while we'd have a beautiful sunset and I'd appreciate it very momentarily, but I would go right back to the fences and right back to the, you know, the walls. And it's like anything that you can do for somebody in prison is going to provide them hope for a future. And even, I know people who are never going home who the same thing, those pictures that they get from their family remind them of a life that they had or remind them of the fact that life can be beautiful even though it might not be today. And if you don't have that, then you just become the concrete and the steel and you become as cold as the concrete and the steel and you become as hard as the concrete and the steel because that's you have no choice when that's all that you're looking at. And the only thing I can equate it to, again, I'm a nerd, full disclosure, like the Pirates of the Caribbean movie <laughs> where, you know, like there's the ghost ship and like everybody becomes the ship, yeah. you know, like yeah, they're yeah. literally a part of the ship. If all you have is the prison, you become the prison. Hmm. And if you're wondering what you can do for somebody who's in prison, if you love them is you can just love them and you can just remind them of that. Mm. And you can not, don't be afraid to tell them about your stories. And I used to, my friends used to say like, I hate fucking complaining to you because look at everything that you face every single day. Right. And I'm out here complaining about the fact that like my steak came medium instead of medium rare. Right. I'm like, no, don't get me wrong. I think it's a stupid thing to complain about, <laughs> but that's life. Right? right. And, and then it also helps by me. sharing it. You get to participate in that yeah. life just vicariously. And also like, even by sharing that, I also had to remember, like, to remind myself, like, yeah, my life might be might be very difficult, but I played a part in that. Right. And the only way to, like, accept that is to, like, say that, yeah, this difficulty has got to be for something, you know? And it's, like, the normal conversations that you would never think twice about, you know, let me reduce this to, like, a 12-second clip for you because i just thought about it despite this 20 minutes of words that i've just spurted out we we throw this online like uncut yeah i find in this day and age with people trying to get everything they can into these you know like 20 minutes yeah, or whatever yeah. or sound bites 
to be able to experience the broad range of conversation is yeah. extremely important. Well, even so for anybody who's just looking for a small summation, but you've listened to this whole thing, right? If you want to know what you can do for somebody who's in prison, treat them like you'd treat anybody else. Right. Because there's value in that. And don't second guess what you would say. Like, what would you write in a letter to your brother who's not in prison? And mm. that's what I would say, write your friend. And what would you what would you do on a phone call with somebody who's not in prison? Like, what what joke would you say? Or like, my sister's the most inappropriate person on planet Earth. <laughs> Every joke that she said to me while I was in prison was an inappropriate homosexual prison joke. <laughs> but that's who my sister is. Oh man. And she would do that with anybody who's not in prison. So I always appreciated that she was authentically herself and treating me like just like her brother, not like a prisoner. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong, it gets out of hand sometimes. I have to remind her, like, it's not funny. <laughs> You know, it's inappropriate, but that's who she is. And I, I guess that's the best advice, you know, despite all the other stuff I said that you can just treat somebody in prison like they're a person and be cognizant of the fact that, yeah, they're in prison and they have different struggles and, you know, probably have some things they're working through that are very unique to their situation, but that also still makes them human hmm. and share with them what you would share with anybody and also allow them to share with you anything as well. Even if you don't understand it, there's, it's always okay to say, man, I can't possibly understand that, hmm. but I hear you, you know? Right. So what can you, what can we do for people who are in prison who just simply don't have anyone on the outside to give them that hope or anything else? Yeah. Like how, what happens to those people? Yeah. This is a, a thing I've been thinking about a lot lately because it's really difficult to accept the fact that there are a lot of people in prison who just don't have siblings and friends and family to communicate with. And those are the people who are most susceptible mm. to, you know, that pirates of the Caribbean becoming sensation to just becoming steel and concrete on there on the inside. And, you know, the system is responsible for those people. Mm. And, you know, like I'm, I've never, I've never done drugs before. I've never done hard drugs, but out here, since I've come out and really in my last few years of prison, I've become like a, a big time hardcore recovery advocate because I've seen how hard drugs affect the people that I love um, inside and outside of the prison. And, and a saying in, in the recovery community is that the opposite of addiction is connection. Hmm. And that, that rings true for people in prison too. Like the opposite of institutionalization is connection. The opposite of addiction is connection. The opposite of hopelessness is connection. The opposite of despair is community or connection, however we want to frame it. And so for those people that you're talking about, they are the most susceptible to all of the negative stereotypes, to all of the negative realities, to all of the cycles that we know are so common for people in prison. Because when you don't have that connection, what you have is addiction and what you have is isolation and what you have is hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to really start considering what the system's responsibility is to creating connection. And like 90 something percent of people in prison are coming home no matter what. And if you're somebody who like didn't have family and didn't have friends in the prison, like on the outside, then your community becomes the prison. Right. And can you imagine leaving the only community you've ever known? Right. Right. You're, you're going to come out here in society and you're going to feel isolated. And the first thing you're going to do, whether you think about it actively or consciously or not is do something to go back to prison where you felt at home. And so like one thing that we need to do as a society, this is like a utopian statement, but 
we need to start like considering the fact that people in prison are people. Mm. And if you have an organization out here that's nonprofit, or if you have an organization out here that's like, whatever it is, hire somebody from a prison, give somebody a chance. If you have the capacity to like call a prison in your state and say, what can I do for people who are coming out that might not have anything? If you're a person in a position of privilege, donate to an organization that does prison outreach or reentry work or any type of work around criminal justice reform, because like what all of these organizations, and I work with like five of them, what we're doing out here is trying to create connections and create pathways for community and, and start that early because another, another, like another thing we do in prison is we say, okay, well, when you're in prison, like you deserve to be there and we isolate you and cut you off from the community, but we understand that you have to reenter society. So like 30 days before you get out, we start figuring stuff out. It's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. 30 days. Yeah. 30, 90 days before you get out, we'll start plugging you in with the homeless shelter you're going to go to, or like where you're going to get your, you know, like three pairs of pants that, you know, we have a voucher for you. Like if we want cycles of violence and crime and addiction to stop, then we need to start treating people and their disease and their reentry day one. And when you go to prison for five years, it shouldn't be your last five months that you're connecting with the community. It should be your first five months, you know, especially if you're somebody who doesn't have family and doesn't have friends and doesn't have money to get on the phone and call people and maintain connections. Like all of the practices that we do in prison are predatory. Right. We charge exorbitant phone rates. Yeah. We we only allow people to communicate through a mechanism that nobody communicates through anymore. When's the last time you wrote somebody a physical letter? I, I want all your listeners to actually ask that of themselves. When's yeah. the last time you sat down at your table with a pen and a piece of paper and not a Christmas card where you wrote like seven sentences that doesn't count, although it is very nice to get Christmas cards in prison. I will say that. But when's the last time that you connected to somebody through that medium? It doesn't exist nowadays, especially for younger people. Yeah, no. And so we don't have the means for people in prison to text and email. And when we do, we charge exorbitant rates. Ironically, poor people go to prison at an astronomically higher rate than middle class or upper class people. Of course. So everything is predatory. And so if you're like, if people are wondering what they can do to make a difference, it's like start asking questions, right? Start generating conversations about, okay, even though people do bad, is does it make sense? at just like a common sense level to isolate them, like not give them the means to communicate with positive influences in their life, not give them the means to like find work and succeed when they get out of prison and then blame them the second time for going back. Like just ask those questions and facilitate those conversations. And if you're in a place where you can do something to help, like reach out to an organization that can give you some advice on what you can do. I think the most powerful thing that society can do today is, offer the opportunity for people to tell their stories, right? Mm -hmm. Like for me, I carried this out of prison with me. I don't care what anybody thinks about me. I know who I am, right? I also understand that because I got such a high level of education that people want me to speak and people want me to tell my story, but I'll always let everybody know this is not just my story, right? And I don't care what you think about me. I know that I made a mistake when I was a young man and I will literally spend the rest of my life trying my best to reconcile myself with that mistake that I made. And I never will. I will never understand how that happened. You know, I can understand a lot of the factors that led to it, but I'll never really be able to confront whatever it was that was within me that night to not think twice about shooting somebody. And 
but I'm out here and I will be out here for the rest of my life knowing that I'm a good person despite that, right? And knowing that I have value and that regardless of who will hear and accept my story, that my story is worth telling. And the same way that those COs used to like abuse me for telling my story and for being who I am, anybody who does out here is just going to add fuel to me, hmm. right? Anybody who, you know, every comment online about, oh, this, this person's a, a violent piece of shit, this and that, you're just fuel. Like your, your opinion does not matter to me because I know that those things you're saying are not true. Right. But not everybody's in that space, right? A lot of people get out here and read those comments and then they hide from the truth of their story. And the thing that happens when you hide from the truth of your story is that you hide from the possibility of redeeming yourself from right. that story. Right. And if you don't have that ability to even tell your story, you're forced to accept the narrative in some way. Absolutely. And not correct it. Or you're forced to tell a new narrative that doesn't acknowledge that one. And then when somebody finds you out, which inevitably everybody will, now you become everything that they labeled you as before anyway. Hmm. Oh, you've been lying about your story because you're bad. Right. Instead of, hold on a second, you're telling me that you did something bad, which makes me think that maybe you're good or like you're accepting it. But as soon as you hide from it, that is a nefarious act that's right. calculated. Right. And it, even if it wasn't for you, when people find out it is, when your job finds out, you get hired, you told them you don't have a criminal record, you can be the best fucking worker that place has ever seen. You can be the hardest worker that a job has ever seen. You could bust your ass blood, sweat, and tears, be the most valuable person in that company. But six months later, when your background comes back, what do you think they're going to do? Eh, we're having cutbacks. They're going to fire you because you lied. Yeah. Right? They're not. They're going to say, damn, that really sucks because that guy's the best worker we've ever had. But there's only one reason he would have lied to us, and that's because obviously he is the person that we're stereotyping to be based on his crimes. Mm. You know, like that's that's the reality that we face as people who are unable or unwilling to tell our stories. And so that's the work society needs to do is start opening up avenues to understand that it's okay for somebody to tell you that I was in prison. And it's okay for somebody to tell you that I did this egregious act when I was young or old or in a worse place than I'm in today. And then maybe by society confronting those stories and hearing those stories, they finally get to a place to understand that like transformation and redemption are possible. Hmm. But we limit them as a society by the narratives we allow people to tell us. Right. It's, it, it seems overwhelming to me that we we have to we have to allow first of all safe uh but connected narrative to to come and go between incarcerated populations and the public mm -hmm. obviously that's fraught with danger and like well they're just gonna pass messages or drugs or i don't whatever <laughs> there, there's always that concern but yeah. there's always a way to like yes but we have to allow the growth and yeah. the change of perception and we have to change the system. And then like you look at the, the danger in our prison system, like the privatization of it, it is just mind blowing how dangerous that is for us. And no. it, it just, that's like a whole different thing to get into that, that really scares the living daylights out of me because it's like you you all of a sudden start railroading it to a, a captured population that you profit off of. Yeah. Which which is contrary to what we need to do as a, as a society, like we, what yeah. we have to do. And that's so scary. But like for the future for you right now, what what are you doing and where are you heading? I mean, I I feel more blessed, you know, today. I'm not like a religious person or a spiritual person necessarily. I I guess I'm a very spiritual person, but uh 
I just feel blessed by whatever power there is in this world because I've had, I mean, it doesn't even make sense. The opportunities that I've had. Um, I'll tell you why you've had those opportunities because you've, you've responded to the negative with courage and insistence on being and going in the right direction yeah and just, doing the right thing and i just want to be like an authentic human being you know and I, I made that decision early on too that like i'm just going to be me i don't want to i'm not going to change for people um because i believe that i am a good person and i believe that i have because of my experience over 13 years of being in prison i spent every single day thinking about why do we do this like not not why do we lock people up i, I will never ever tell anybody that i didn't deserve to go to prison I just deserve to have prison be something different, right? We all have, Mm. we all deserve that. And I'm not even saying prisoners deserve that. Society deserves to have prison be something different because it's failing. Right. And I can identify in a longer conversation or a series of conversations a hundred ways. I should write a book called A Hundred Ways Prisons Are Failing because I can identify the things that people know, but I can also identify some of the things that maybe people don't understand because they don't come at it from a lived experience narrative perspective. Right. Right. But, you know, I got to a point just like for some background where I finished my bachelor's degree and I wanted to get a master's degree and I had discovered restorative justice and it changed my life because discovering restorative justice was the first time in my life that I was able to say, you're not a victim, right? Like I am a victim of just a stupid system, but my arrival to the prison was not as a victim. I became a victim because of our broken systems and structures, right? Because of all the structural violence in our country that leads people to prison and then commits violence against them during and after. I am a victim of that. Now, that's a, that's just a fact. But I'm not a victim of, of that night where I hurt that person. I'm, I'm an offender. I'm a perpetrator. I'm a, I was a stupid kid who made a, who made a choice that I should have known better than, than making. And there is a whole story that leads up to that. But the reality that I accepted when I learned about restorative justice is that only when I can take responsibility for the moment that I am responsible for, can I ever really understand the harm that was created. This is where you start to build. Yeah. And because of that journey, when I was finishing my bachelor's degree, it was in 2018. And for eight years, all I had known was being a student in prison. And so like in some respects for eight years, I was a prisoner, but for eight years, I was also a student. Right. And I was scared to death, man, to like not go to school anymore. I was like, what the fuck am I going to do? If I don't have school, like, I mean, I got some other cool things going on. I became a certified yoga instructor, you know, like I can teach yoga. I can do stuff that adds value to my community, but like I have this passion. I want to keep learning and I want to learn about like, something related to restorative justice. Anyway, long story short, nobody had ever gotten a master's degree or enrolled in graduate classes while in the main department of corrections custody. And I became aware of that. And I just started doing what I always do, asking questions. Why? How does that make any sense? Oh, well, we can't, we don't have the means. If you can find correspondence from like half the world is on the internet. Why I can't do an online program. No. And I was like, well, I can, because you have a policy that says I can, well, we've never done it. And I'm like, okay, well, let's do it. Like, <laughs> We've, we've never done a lot of things in life. Nobody had ever explored fire. And then somebody said, let's do it. And now best pain in the ass ever. Right? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and it got to the point where I, I basically gave, you know, the people that I was talking to two options. I said, check this out. You guys know this about me. I'm very focused on this. 
I'm going to get my master's degree while I'm here. You can say yes, or you can say no. I'm still going to do it. I'm going to find a school who is compelled enough about my story and my passion for learning to do it through the mail if I have to. But I'm going to get out and I'm going to tell the story about whether you are a help or a barrier to me bettering my life to get my education in a field that might help people. You like have this direct conversation yeah. with them. Yeah. And I just, I said, you know, like, Jeez. I'm going to tell this story and I hope that you guys are on the right side of it. And I had done that my whole time in prison. I had compiled every write up, every grievance, every letter. I saved copies of it to tell a story. I will tell that story one day. I don't know when I got to finish my degree first. Right. But you know, and, and it's like, I'm not going to make it sound all adversarial. They supported me at the time. There was just some worried about, there were some worries about like, can we support it? Like, how is the staff going to respond to you being online and all these things? I'm like, it doesn't matter how they respond to it. Your policy supports it. Right. So let's just make sure we're, we're within the policy. And, you know, thankfully, the people who had positions to make those decisions really supported me as an individual, I think, and also supported what I wanted to do in my life. And so... They basically said, if you can get accepted at a school that has an online program, we'll make it work. I think maybe they thought there was no chance I'd ever get accepted as at a school. Well, coincidentally, I got accepted at the number one school for peace and conflict resolution in the world, right? Where's Anna? At George Mason University. Oh, yeah. Or you, so, you were down there speaking. Yeah, yeah. And so that's, you know, that's where I got my master's degree and that's where I'm a PhD, PhD student at. And so, like, I did some really cool shit, right? I was the first person to get accepted into that program. I was the first person in Maine to get an advanced degree while incarcerated. I believe I was the first person in the United States of America, and I think still the only person to ever receive IRB approval from a major institution as an incarcerated person to do human subject research with the same population that I was incarcerated with. Hmm. And so I got to do my master's thesis based on some research I did with the men that I was in prison with. And, you know, like involved in a bunch of restorative justice initiatives around the prison and stayed involved in some other things. And so like a lot of this got attention. Right. And then much like the work that you did, you know, like an article was written about the research that I was doing in the Portland Phoenix. It went, you know, completely bananas online, like 300,000 people read it. And it was a pathway to tell my story, right, about why I believe in restorative justice and why I believe the victim harmed my system at least as much as I did. And we don't talk about that. I mean, the system harmed my victim at least as much as I did. And we just don't ever talk about that. We just mm -hmm. want to blame every person who's ever hurt somebody instead of looking at what the structures and the systems do to people as well. And, uh, you know, I finished my master's degree, applied to the PhD program, filed for a commutation. Of course, our, our you know, gracious governor said no without any reason. And that generated some conversation, too. And so in the last few years, you know, just like following this path of my education, following this belief that there's a better approach to doing criminal justice and holding people accountable and healing victims and continuing my education has led me to some really cool opportunities. And so, you know, right now, Anytime anybody asks me to speak, I go. I don't care if I get paid. I hope I get paid because I got to pay my bills. But, you know, anytime somebody asks me to speak, I go. And, you know, just like this week, for instance, on Monday, last Monday, um, I did something on last Monday. But Tuesday, I drove to Pennsylvania. Wednesday, I spoke on a panel at Penn State about the value of higher education in prison and how it relates to the process of reentry. Thursday, I drove back from Pennsylvania to Maine, did a virtual event about oral history 
and the power of first-person narrative, you know, in uh, commemoration of Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, but also about how the lessons we learn from that in the Holocaust relate to the process of broken criminal justice systems and the stories we don't tell versus the stories we should tell. And then on Friday, I got to go back to Maine State Prison and introduce a speaker at UMA, uh, Umaine Augusta, who, you know, was reading excerpts from his uh, poetry book called Felon, which is all poems that were, you know, about criminal justice and incarceration. His mm-hmm. name is Reginald Dwayne Betts. It's an amazing book. Um, you know, I, I take every opportunity to speak about our broken system, to teach about our broken system, um, to facilitate conversations about reentry, change, everything that I can. And because I, you know, because I am a nerd and I have a passion for education and teaching, you know, I, and I also have like no fear about hearing the word no. I've just pushed the envelope as much as I can. And uh, I'll be teaching at UMaine Augusta this fall. And it'll be a class that I created about the way that narratives and systems interact with one another. And it's actually going to be an inside out class. So there'll be men from the prison that I was at who will take my class along with students at UMaine Augusta. Oh, wow. And I'm also in, uh, in the process of finalizing a class to teach at Colby in January, which will be a month long intensive class about, uh, you know, the stories we tell about crime and how media covers crime and, and just like the way that narratives about people in prison and correctional officers and police permeate society and, and set the stage for the, the narratives we believe about people in prison. And, uh, you know, hoping to, I work with kids at Long Creek, which is Maine's youth prison every week. Um, you know, technically it's not a youth prison, it's a youth development center, but we still shut the doors behind the kids and they live behind concrete and steel. So, yeah. So I believe that that place has all, I, I mean, I love a lot of the work they do there. That's why I go there. I volunteer there. Um, work with those kids every single week, just, but also modeling for them that like, you don't have to let this define you. Um, or you can let it define you in a really positive way if you use it the right way, like, like I did with my time and like so many people that I know up there are doing. So I'm just involved, man, in changing the narrative, um, hopefully creating pathways for people to tell new and better stories. And with my own story, forcing people to confront the reality of the fact that I'm not special. I just had some special opportunities and chose to seize them, you know, Mm -hmm. and, if we do that for other people, then man, we can have a, a system that's healthy and actually benefiting society instead of hurting it. And, uh, I probably got like 10 other things going on that I can't figure out right now, but you know, I'm just like, honestly, my biggest obstacle since coming home has been stopping. Right. Yeah. You have to be so careful, especially when you're involved in what could almost be considered a spiritual work in a way. Right. Because you can tell yourself, I have to keep doing that. I have to accept everything and you will burn out. Yeah. And that's my biggest fear. I mean, like I've had to confront some of that. I'm also, you know, in my last two classes right now for my PhD. And once I finish this semester, you know, two weeks from now, I, the only thing I have left to finish my degree is my dissertation. And, uh, but like coming home, I've put much less time into my schoolwork because I'm trying to change the world in whatever small ways that I can. And saying yes to every opportunity to speak. I mean, I was at Westbrook High School today talking mm-hmm. to young people about recovery and addiction and um, community and connection. And can't say no to that opportunity. I'll never yeah. say no to that. You know, that's important work. But I also have to make the time to do my schoolwork. But it's like, you know, not to get off topic, but real quick, like reentry is hard, man. I spent 13 years in prison. For, I was arrested at 21. I got out at 35. Wow. And so like 
I don't really know how to be an adult and I don't know how to navigate relationships and I don't know how to cook. <laughs> like there's just certain things, you know, yeah. that you can't really prepare people to deal with coming out here. And I've had to, because I came out in the middle of a semester of my PhD, um, during a pandemic, during a pandemic, you know, with like, even though I had all the things I needed, like I had a car, I got, I had my license, I had a place to stay. That was a really honestly beautiful place. I'm just fortunate for a lot of those things, but like also had to figure out like how to navigate a relationship and how to navigate, you know, the fact that for the last 13 years, my meals were provided to me and took me a total of 30 minutes throughout the day to eat all three meals combined. Right. And now if I want to cook, that takes me like an hour and a half. And if I want to, <laughs> you know, like also, you know, I paid 10 cents a minute for every phone call. And so now that it's like free, for lack of a better word. I mean, I pay like a hundred bucks a month for as many phone calls as I want. I feel like I need to make a thousand phone calls a day. Right. And so, you know, balancing time and figuring out time and figuring out all these things is a really difficult process. So like, even though I have all this cool stuff going on and I think I'm doing work that matters and it's important, I'm also slowly trying to figure out how to be an adult for the first time in my life at the age of 35 and right. how to balance time and how to be, you know, like accepting of things in the world that I've never had to confront before and, you know, how to show up for everybody that I can show up for without forgetting to show up for myself. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's all a balancing act, but burnout is real for sure. Oh, yeah. And I've had a couple of those instances. Also had like a terrible snowboarding accident seven weeks ago. I was very concussed for six oh, weeks. No. So kind of healing, you know, my actual face and brain, while also taking that time to heal my heart and my spirit from what I experienced while I was in prison and, you know, doing a lot of the self work so that I can do the, you know, systemic societal work that I want to do. It's all a balancing act. You know? Yeah. That, that's a hard one to, I, I grew up with my dad as a pastor and my, even my father-in-law was a principal and a pastor in like a church school. Yeah. And to watch them be so incredibly mission oriented that you never say no in those jobs yeah. and you get underpaid for it and overworked completely. And then to watch the, it, it's not balanced it, in that uh, system. I've seen it be very imbalanced and I've always been very protective. I noticed that as a kid and been protective of it with myself. Yeah. And, and I felt selfish for doing that, but I, I saw what it could do if you weren't, you know, and that that's been a, a hard thing to see in, in other people, just cautionary tale from yeah. my side of what very little amount of suffering I've had in my life. So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, like I remind myself, you know, <clears throat> a couple of times a week to like do a little bit less. Yeah. And even if I'm doing so much to just like take a minute for myself to just like acknowledge you know, not be my own worst critic, acknowledge that the work I'm doing is important, acknowledge that I'm very, very privileged to have access to the things I have access to in terms of the places and the people and the things with the work that I'm doing. Um, but then also to remind myself, like, what the end goal is, right? And that, you know, I'm not going to do anything today. This is like long-term sustainable work that I'm engaged in. And so it's okay to not try to do everything this week mm -hmm. to understand that next year I'll have some work to do as well. And just like remind myself that I think I keep the expectations a little too high for myself sometimes that I should be figured out how to be a normal person out here by now. And so like I spent 13 years inside and I've been outside for six months. And of those six months, two of them was highly concussed. 
Jeez. And so you just got out, went right off of oh, I kicker. Did, well, and, I did great. Oh. I, I snowboarded 12 times. It was the 13th time that I just, you know, smacked my face off the ice real hard. Um, I'd, I'd go to the, in a, in the, to the ER in an ambulance for a CT scan and everything. Oh, man. So I was pretty jacked up. It was actually these scars are from that. Wow. Um, you know, so like remind myself that those two months basically don't count. And that even like my first couple months out, you know, I got I, I got out, hit the ground running in terms of advocacy and, you know, finding avenues to tell my story and stuff. But it's like I have 13 years of prison that lives inside of me. Yeah. You know, and I have 13 years of habits that are very specific to institutional life that are not conducive to being to living a life out here that I have to shed. Right. And you don't just sweat them out your first workout, right? Mm -hmm. Like I have to remind myself that it might take me a year. It might take me five years to. Dude, I'm 45 and I've been out the whole time. Yeah. I'm still learning, man. (laughs) I'm sure there's maturity, but that's that's the point. You know what I mean? Is like, I'm not going to figure all this out. Like, you know, trying to like navigating a serious relationship is something that I've never had to do before. And that comes with obstacles out here. That That's I, the hardest part. Yeah. That I don't understand. <laughs> and like, you know, it's, you, you go from like being in prison and not really being able to offer anybody anything to being out here and being able to offer somebody everything, but then having to feel like it's not good enough. And, you know, like there's a lot of self-worth that you question and you already do that in st- anyways because you're coming out as a as a convict. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And then like you engage in relationships and you go through all that self-doubt and you question your value and you question your worth. And then you're like, oh, and I forgot to eat today because nobody fed me. Right. But I'm 35. That's my own responsibility. Or you're like, oh, I ate today, but like I spent thirty dollars on fast food. And now I'm fat and gross. And like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's all of these little things that. I really, I had thought about for so long while I was in prison, I thought I'd just have it all figured out. And after a couple of months realizing that I don't have anything figured out other than how to do the one thing that I know how to do, which is like talk about the brokenness of the system. I can do that all day long, every single day. And that can sustain me yeah. until I need to eat and sleep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's like, I, I would beat myself up a lot, you know? And more recently I've gone through some things you know, like experienced the world in a little bit of a different way, gone through some emotional relationship funks, you know, like realize that it's not me, it's the other person. Like I'm giving everything I can. And, you know, you, you can't blame yourself if somebody's not ready to love you. Just like you can't blame yourself that you're not ready to cook filet mignon when you've never even cooked a burger. Right. Just like I can't blame myself that my sleep habits are disrupted when for 13 years a physical steel door closed behind me and the only option was to sleep, read or watch TV. So, yeah, I had a good sleep schedule. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, it's like finding balance out here is something I'm really working on right now and and really reminding myself that like with all the opportunities that are presenting themselves to do research that matters, to teach these classes that matter, to speak in forums at places that matter will only get better the more I take care of myself. Right. Right. And so it's like really, you know, connecting to myself, um, to open up that, that pathway to healthy, you know, a healthier journey into what I'm doing. And, And the last thing I'll say about that is like, I know how to do a lot of things inside of a prison cell, right? Like I know how to cope. I know how to self-reflect. I know how to be a student. I mean, that was the hardest part of my transition is learning how to be a student out here. Like now I have access. I can go on any website 
on seven different devices. I mean, I got an Apple Watch, I got an iPhone, I got a MacBook, I got an iPad. And you would think with all of that access, it would be like I'd be a academic rock star because I never had those things. I never had the internet widely available to me. I never had um, unlimited time to do research and type my papers. Like I had to very rigidly plan everything out. But what I also never had was distractions, right? And I would be in my cell from 5.30 at night until 6.45 in the morning, and I had choices to make. Do I sleep? Do I work out? Do I watch TV or do I do homework? And for me, it was always a no-brainer. I do my homework. Well, now out here, you know, that same technology that I could be doing this high-level research with also sends me emails and Facebook messages and Instagram messages. And these are all things that platforms I have to be on to get the word that I, to get the word out about criminal justice reform and about the work I do. But it's also highly distracting. Yeah. And then it's like, I also got to drive an hour and a half everywhere I go because I live in the middle of nowhere. And I also got to find a way to feed myself and all these things that I never had to do that take time. I have to find a way to balance and manage. And so like, I know how to do a lot of things in prison coming out here at the age of 35, entering the adult free world for the first time. I got to figure out how to do those things out here now. So I got to figure out how to self-reflect and how to cope when I'm not locked in a box where the only thing to look at is the mirror. Right. I got to force myself to look at the mirror more. I got to force myself to, you know, lock myself in a mental box to get my work done because the physical one is no longer available to me. And I got to force myself to like understand that just because I'm home and I'm out doesn't mean that just my presence brings the value to people that I want it to bring. Mm. Right. Like other people have to deal with their own lives and you know, the people that show up for me, like will show up for me when they can. And that I got to lower my expectations a lot of times and just worry about how I show up for, the communities that matter to me. And so I'm learning how to be an adult and learning how to be a student and learning how to do a lot of things for the first time in my life. Hmm. But it's been a great journey, you know, with a lot of really positive opportunities to hopefully make a difference. And that's what I'm committed to doing, you know, never hiding from my story because maybe a piece of my story changes somebody else's. Right. Dude, thank you so much for responding to the call in your life that you have. Thank you for, uh, you know, admitting what you've done and building from that and sharing that with us. That is just huge. Um, I really appreciate it. And please know that anything that you're doing from here out where you could use a creative vision from the talents that we have, reach out. We're here. We'd love to help because this is uh, one way that, you know, through, through you, I can give back. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I don't know enough about your world, but I know the world that you experienced and the things going on there need attention and they don't have much funds. Yeah. And to, for someone to afford what we do, we charge an absorbent amount because we can, Yeah. but I want to give back like just in that way. It's very valuable to me to, to be able to help where I can and, so please reach out when Absolutely. you need help. If you need to, whatever it is that, you know, we can do to help, we're here. We'd love to help um, to to give other inmates voices that, that you feel yeah. that are voices that need to be heard. Um, anything we can do, anything we can organize, please let us know. Appreciate and please that, take time for yourself. Absolutely. Because that's, you're, you, you have a lot of value out here. Mm. Because of your experience, take care of yourself. Yeah, I will. 
But uh, thank you so much for taking the time to come down here, speak with us. Um, so appreciated. Yeah, man. Thank you for the opportunity. And, uh, you know, thanks for nine years ago for the idea and the vision. <laughs> and also thanks for staying committed to it. You know, one thing I didn't tell you is like, I watch all the videos uh, anytime you ever spoke about this project. No. Um, and it's just like to see the impact it had on you and to know that your story can have that same impact on other people. Like that's what it's all about. And so I want, you to know, I appreciate you immensely for, uh, allowing yourself to be impacted by, by this project and the story and, and sharing your personal connection to it. Cause that takes just as much courage as anything that I've ever done. And, uh, just, so thank you, you know, like, this is a privilege for me. This is a opportunity that I would never pass up on to, you know, like I said, being courageous enough to tell my own story to hopefully inspire other people to tell theirs and know that that's okay. It's, it's a good thing to do that. Not a bad thing. So now if people want to get in touch with you, I don't want everyone to overpower you with <laughs> like, so is there any controlled means of like some kind of, I mean, you've got to have a filter. Yeah. Um, but like, is there a, if, if organizations or anything want to reach out to when you have a schedule that, you know, allows it that they should reach out to you for. Yeah. I mean, I would just, honestly, I'll just put my email out there. Don't do that. Dude. No, don't <laughs> you think do it'll that. be a flood. <laughs> I don't, I don't know how many people I, I avoid looking at who ever like watches yeah. this or comments or anything else. Yeah. Comments on anything go immediately bad. Yeah. So I just don't. Oh, I don't. I mean, one thing I'll tell you that I learned about myself is uh, I don't. Bad comments don't ever bother me. The The only time I've ever really interacted with comments was like with this project yeah. after we put it up in the gallery, like Bangor Daily News or something, you know, did did a write up on it. And I was like, wow, that's cool. You know, and I go to the online thing of it. And within like three comments, yeah. it like just descended into a racist like. It was super yeah. weird. Yeah, yeah it's like really the, the lack of accountability and just like the lack of frontal lobe in that environment mm -hmm. was just like... But it also shows, I mean, it's uh, like another reason that negative comments don't bother me anymore is because all of that negative comment world is just every time a case study of nar of narratives, right? Mm -hmm. It's a case study of like the stories that people have access to, the stories that people are willing to accept, the stories of crime and criminality and redemption. Right, like, right. So <laughs> even when it's about me, like sometimes I go online when new articles right, are written and I'll read all the negative comments and I just look at it from an academic lens. I don't take it personally because like obviously the people who are reading those stories don't know me personally. And just like anybody listening to this you know, will not know me personally, most likely. And so any of the comments that they have are really based off information that's been fed to them by a broken system. Mm -hmm. And so I don't take it personally, you know, yeah. but if there's anybody out there who, who who has work, like, especially if you have questions about restorative justice, if you have questions about narrative, if you have questions about storytelling, the system, whatever, you know, I, I can definitely put my email out there and just understand that I might not get back to you right away because I am kind of a busy person, but I care about connecting with people. I care about connecting with organizations and doing work that potentially can make a bit a difference and doing work that makes people believe in, in themselves. And that doesn't matter if you're a prisoner, a victim, a community member who wants to understand the system better. It doesn't matter to me who you are. All right, you've you've been warned, but go ahead with your email address. All right. So my email address is the 
B Brown, so T H E B B R O W N zero three at gmail.com. And again, email me. I'm not going to promise I'll get back to you right away because it's also, a, I've been trying to figure out how to do the whole email thing recently. But I mean, anybody can feel free to email me negative comments, positive comments, whatever you've got. You know, if it's negative, I probably won't respond. Yeah. And if it's positive, I probably will at some point. Okay. Two, two hilarious and fun comments and questions to, to round it up. Do they have like once a week, do they show Shawshank Redemption at the prison? No, but it's is on it banned. It's no, but it is on TV literally seven days a week. Uh, right. There's a pretty comprehensive cable package at the prison right now. Yeah. Um, and you can definitely find that movie playing at least four days a week on one station or another. That's, that's like my favorite movie ever. And I yeah. had even, like the first time I saw it, I had no idea it was based in Maine or yeah. that Stephen King wrote it or anything else. Yeah. I was like, after watching it just recently, I was like, whoa, look at all that. Before you ask your second question, I'll give you a fun short story. So my last six months, I worked at the Maine State Prison showroom in Thomaston, Maine. Mm -hmm. That uh, like, so we sold a bunch of Shawshank paraphernalia, like, right. you know, bottle openers, mugs, T-shirts. Right. Um, because, and then I learned the history of why Stephen King wrote that book. And, you know, because it was based on the old prison in Thomaston, mm -hmm. he actually came to the, the old, the old Thomaston prison and interviewed a bunch of guards and, and prisoners and based, you know, a lot of his representations of prison life and even some of his characters on those interviews. Oh, wow. Um, but Shawshank is obviously a fictitious prison. And the movie was shot in Mansfield, Ohio. A lot of people yeah, think it was yeah. shot in Maine, but no. So yeah, it's just a funny story that I worked at the old state, uh, old, the, at the Maine state prison showroom and every day of my life I had to explain to people the difference between Shawshank and Thomaston. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So last one, uh, what is the most marked difference of being out in public from when you went in to coming out? Oh man, I mean, I'm going to give you a, a, I guess a funny kind of joking difference and then a serious one. The funny kind of joking one is that marijuana was not legal before I went in. Right. And so it was like more taboo to like smoke weed openly or like smell like weed. And so my first few weeks, because I came out with my license valid, um, my first few weeks, every time I'd be at a gas station or a store, somebody would get out of their car and just like pour out weed smoke. And I would be like uh, immediately have an intense reaction. Like, Oh shit, I got to get out of here. The cops are going to come and I'm on conditions. <laughs> oh, right. And right. then I would remember that, Oh, that's, like, it's oh, legal for everybody else now. So I don't have to worry, but it was like a culture shock. And like, right. you know, and obviously because it's legal now, everybody smokes weed. It's not like people <laughs> smoke and keep it to themselves. It's right. just a free for all. Everybody's like, who's got weed and who's got edibles and who's got this. Right. So that's my, my funny, you know, shocking difference. Um, I think the other difference is like, <laughs> I've always been a, a technology nerd. Like, you know, when smartphones started coming out, I had the first Blackberry that ever came out just before I went to prison. The first iPhone came out. So I had that. Yep. Um, so like getting used to technology was not hard for me at all, but what has been shocking is how much people depend on it oh, yeah. and how much it runs people's lives. Yeah. And, um, and just also just like people aren't present, yeah, you know, and I, I've already become guilty of it just because, like I said, I have to manage emails, text messages yeah. and like all sorts of stuff for work and connecting with friends and family and all that. But like, I don't think I've had more than 10 conversations with somebody where like their phone wasn't in their hand or in their face or, yeah. you know, they weren't on their tablet or I just like it's been really shocking to see how much of a lack of human connection there is. And I think COVID exacerbated it. Yeah. Because obviously that was like the coping mechanism for everybody. 
And so I think for me, it's been really difficult to adjust to having to have my face and technology to connect with people hmm. as opposed to just like being present with yeah, someone in the moment. With and, mm. and a lot of that's because, especially as a hospice volunteer for seven years at the Main State Prison, you know, what we, the work that we did was really intimately revolved around the idea of presence. When you sit with somebody in their last days of living, especially mm. when they're dying in a prison infirmary, the only gift that you can give them is presence. And if you're not phys- if you're not present there spiritually, mentally, actively listening, actively paying attention to whatever like discomfort they might have, so that you can you know help, then you're not doing a service. Right. And so for me, having that idea of presence be deeply rooted from that hospice work that I did, and then also you know like it's it's a really central tenet of like yoga and teaching yoga as well is being present for people. It has been a little bit weird out here, yeah, you know, and then yeah. it's like, even when I want to be present for people that aren't prepared to have me be present for them, I yeah, revert. It's like you almost feel like you're imposing on someone yeah. to just have a conversation. Oh, I feel like that all of the time. And so then, weird. And then it's ironic because as a defense mechanism, I'm like, all right, I'll get out my phone. Right. Like, mm-hmm. And then the few people in my life who are present for me are now like, man, you're not even present for us. And then I have this overwhelming guilt where I'm like... I can't argue. You're right because I've fallen into the trap. You know, it's really good for that. Two little kids who don't have yeah. phones to be like, "Hey, <laughs> yeah, daddy." I've, I've empowered my kids to be like, "You know, you're on Instagram again, That's and hilarious. I'm right here." I'm yeah. like, All right, dude. I, you're correct. You're right. That's what you need, though. Oh, it's so hard. Yeah, yeah. It it's so consuming and so immediate and so easy. Yeah. It's just like, yeah. It you're you're like the only person I've been able to talk to. Yeah. who remembers like how it was before. Cause like my son was born within the year, the first iPhone came out, Yeah, you know? And it's just like, Oh, this is, this is it, like, he's, he has an articulate memory of all like video Each footage one, yeah. of him in oh, those yeah, memories, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? And that's, that's such a different um, existence than any of us experienced as yeah. kids, you know? So it's a very odd thing, but is what it is. Yeah. I'm not good at it either. Like, I mean, I was at a thing today when we were, we were, we were speaking to some kids at Westbrook high school. And one of the people that I was there speaking with looked at my phone and saw all my notifications mm-hmm. and just was like, had it, they had like a stress response. Like, I don't know how you do it. And I'm like, Oh, I, I've got like, my email is at like, I don't know, thousands, you yeah. know? And I'm just like, I'll get them. And my Facebook notifications, you know, like text messages, phone. I've got like seven voicemails I haven't listened to from the past month. It's, it's also rude on my part. I should probably do better. But it's like sometimes I'm not – I can't be obsessed with my phone, right. you know, right. and I drive so much that I'm not going to check those things while I'm driving. And, you know, like it's it just – it causes people so much anxiety nowadays. You know what's really messed up? I know we were supposed to say goodbye a while ago, but hey. Um, let's see. Last week I'm driving into the studio here and I was – you know, I was like, let's see what's on Instagram real quick. And I look at it and it was something like catching. Cause I was going through like just finding some, a Pandora station to yeah. listen to, you know? And then and I'm like, oh, check instant, you know? And I was like, Oh, and I look up, I am in the other freaking lane. <laughs> yeah. And if someone was coming, I yeah. could have killed them. Yeah. And I was like, geez, I've never done that before. And I like go back to my lane. I put my phone down and like internally I'm like, was your problem yeah put it you know not more than five seconds later my brain was like just be careful next yeah time i gotta check that. it again i reach for the phone and i start to open it back yeah. up you have to remind yourself i mean it's such a like it's a black hole it sucks oh. you in yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. But if you don't have it, you're disconnected and like, well, especially like if you're doing anything professional, like I need to get better at, oh, e- yeah. at emailing from my phone and like doing the productive things and not falling into black holes. And it's also, I use social media as a platform, like as a positive platform. Like I try to use it as a reason to make people laugh. I try to use it as a reason to keep people informed about what's happening with criminal justice and what's happening with mass incarceration and, you know, like telling more complex positive stories because I have a decent enough following of people who are paying attention. And so it's like, I live in it for those reasons, but I just got to remember to like use my time on the phone more efficiently. But when, so that when people are around that I'm trying to connect to, I can put it away. But you know, the, the dangerous thing, even in that thinking is, is that those moments when you should have been bored that you then revert to internal processing. Yeah it steals that from you, you know? And like, we were just, we just drove across the country and back this winter. And the last part from like Michigan to here, I refused to put anything on the radio or anything else for the kids to listen to because it was just me and my two boys from Michigan to here. And I just insisted that like, you can just sit and be bored or you can talk to me. Yeah. And we actually got into like some stuff that we haven't gotten into before because there's always that like, well, let's listen to books on tape or MP3, you know, and, that noise and and it's so hard to do that now. Yeah, that's so, awesome. Hey, you you gotta you gotta go and just be by yourself for a bit, yeah. I imagine. So, again, thank you so much for responding to the good in your life and and being who you are and doing what you're doing. Thank, and thank you. you for coming down here, Brandon Subossel. Subossel Brown. Yeah. Uh, you've got his email from earlier in there and. Uh, uh, and if you want to get in contact with him and you can't remember the email address, contact me. I'll put you in touch with him. He's doing speaking engagements uh, for universities, grade schools and high schools, whatever. Anything. Yeah. And we're going to be teaching at Colby. And Hopefully Colby in January Colby and you made Augusta in September. Doing the good work of things that really need to get done that are drastically underfunded. So if you're really wealthy and you want to fund good work, uh, talk to Brandon. So. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Trent.